But if you do it, it knocks out the cold. That you don't have it for three weeks, you have it for three, four days. Okay, everyone, I am back. <laughs> I know I was off the grid since last week, Saturday night, Matzah Shabbos, when I, we did have Fabrengen over here, which was very, very powerful, very special, but it wasn't such a clear recording. But here we are. I simply was having a little cold this week and was not up to teaching. It's very hard. Probably the cold mixed with a little yetzahara for me not to teach. Evil inclination. <laughs> but that only shows because these classes are so important. How much energy is, I feel like, the battle in order to just sit down over here and teach. It's not easy. Anyways, I'm feeling a little better today. Um, I don't say under the weather. That would be the regular. That would be the regular way of saying under the weather. But a Jew is never under anything. Weather is nature. And the, tonight is Hanukkah. Oh, I forgot. we have to we have to lead off with Happy Hanukkah, everyone. Hanukkah reveals that when we when we dig deep inside ourselves, we uncover our godly essence, and from our godly essence, we are not under anything. We're not under nature, and therefore we can't be under the weather. So the body could sometimes go on a dreidel spin a little bit. So sometimes you have to respect the body a little bit, give it a little rest. And uh, But now, Baruch Hashem, I'm back. And let's hope we're going to have a really good learning tonight. So tonight's class is going to be part three from what we've been learning the last two Thursdays. We're learning a phenomenal discourse connected to the holiday of Yutes Kislev which we had last week, it was connected to two holidays that we had. One was Yud Kislev and the other one was Yutes Kislev, which are the two holidays of Pad B'Shalem Nafshi, which means that Hashem, the, the redemption of the two Chabad Rebbe's, the Mitla Rebbe and the Alter Rebbe, on the 10th of Kislev and the 19th of Kislev, both of them said the verse that King David said, that David HaMelech said, you have redeemed my soul in peace. And we were ex- explaining that their redemption, when they came out of jail, these great, phenomenal Kabbalists and saintly people, Hasidic masters, who introduced Messianic light into the world, and they're founding fathers of Chabad Hasidism, which is the light of Mashiach. And their redemption from their whatever oppositions that they faced is the redemption of Mashiach. That's why they use the same verse that King David, who's speaking about of his personal redemptions, but his personal redemptions are much more than just his redemption in his personal life, but rather relating to the offspring, to his future offspring, which is Mashiach. Mashiach is going to be redeemed. And when Mashiach comes, we're all going to experience the ultimate redemption. Now, the emphasis over here in that verse is as the mimer, this discourse. Now, the Mittler Rebbe said this discourse. The Mittler Rebbe is the second Chabad Rebbe. He said this discourse on the words Padre B'Shalom Nafshi. And, and I don't know if he said it at the time of his own redemption or if he said it bef- many years before. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe he said it regarding his father's redemption on Yutes Kislev. Whatever it is, the year that the Mitlur Rebbe said it, I don't know. It's in the book Shari Tshuva and in a particular section called Shar Hatfila. And, and we are holding, we learned the first seven chapters and we have eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 to finish tonight. <laughs> Just quite a lot, but let's go for it. So the theme that we've been learning is the question is, how do you have a Pada B'Shalem? Pada B'Shalem means a redemption in peace. 
What does redemption and peace mean? On the one hand, you need to be redeemed because there's an enemy. Because you're up against the force that wants to, do, wants to fight against you, that's destroying you. But on the other hand, the redemption happens in a way where, 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 where there's peace. So the simple way of understanding it is that a moment earlier, you're in a place of conflict. You're in a place of, of even in a place of being in a, a prisoner, like the Alter Rebbe and the Middle Rebbe were pr- imprisoned by the czars. One was imprisoned by Tsar Paul. The other one was imprisoned by Tsar by um, Alexander. In the end, both of them were vindicated and both were redeemed. But there, there, so there is, there is, there is a, a, a darkness. There is a force, a battle you're fighting. But then when the, when, when the redemption happens, you're redeemed in a way that the enemy is completely, is after the redemption, in other words, the day after, the morning after the redemption, there is peace. Sometimes you can be redeemed from a certain situation, but there's still an enemy. For example, last week we saw hostages coming out. Hostages came out, but there's still an enemy. First of all, there are many hostages that are still there. Secondly, there's still a threat. They're still shooting rockets. There's still a threat from, and, and, and Hamas are still saying that, that this, the words, the evil, they said this was only a rehearsal. This was only a practice, what they did. And which means the evil is still standing. There's still a menace. They're still threatening. So there could be that after even someone is redeemed, a miracle happens and someone is extracted from, from... For example, I'll give another example. When the Jews went out of Egypt in the night of, 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 of the, 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 the plague of the firstborn, Makat Pachoros, the plague of the firstborn, they were redeemed. But, but Paro and his... And the enemy, Pharaoh, was still, was still an enemy. So much so that he gave chase after them with the intent of annihilation. He wanted to kill them all. Like it says in Oz Yashir, in the song that we sing, Omar Oyev, the enemy said, Erdov Asig, I'm going to chase. I'm going to pursue them. Asig, I will reach them. Chalak Shalol, I will divide the spoils. And um, so I will, I will totally destroy them. I will kill them all. Terush uh, uh, um I will draw out my sword. I will, I will, I will make them poor. In other words, I will murder them. I'll kill them. I'll, I'll, I'll exterminate them. So Pharaoh, even after the redemption, there was still an evil. So it wasn't peace. Even after there isn't peace. So then means on a superficial level, right? Here. On a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a superficial level, which means on a more chitzoniistic level, on an external level, it can mean that, yes, now there's conflict, now there's an enemy, but the moment the redemption happens, there's no more enemy. For example, uh, Sancherev came and, and surrounded the city of Jerusalem, and he said that, I, and he looked at Jerusalem, and he came with such a big army, and he looked at it, and he said, hey, everybody, all my, every one of my armies can just spit at the city, and we will drown it. Or we'll go and we'll throw one stone. Everybody just throw one stone, we'll bury the whole city. That's what Sancheros said. In the end, that night, God opened up the ears of his army to hear the song of the angels. And the entire army just dropped dead. The next day, there were literally hundreds of thousands of corpses around Jerusalem. There was no more enemy. So over there, what happened? The redemption happened. And a moment after the redemption, there was peace. 
Because there was no one there to harm. There was no more in opposition. What, and so that, that could mean, or, or even better, your enemy gets such a, such, gets beaten up so badly. There is such a defeat of the evil, of the force of darkness, whatever it is, that, that, that they surrender. Or even deeper than that, not only they surrender, but they can actually be transformed. They become your friend. They say, oh, you know what? You know what? I'm convinced. I'm convinced in your power. I'm convinced I'm never going to fight you again. So these are all, but these are all different levels of shalim. One is the enemy is completely crushed, destroyed. The other one is the enemy surrenders, not, not destroyed, but he surrenders, is subdued and surrenders. And, and, and the third level is that they're transformed. However, the point over here is that the shalom, the peace, happens after the redemption. At the time of the redemption, there is still conflict. After the redemption, for example, a moment before the, the plague of the firstborn, there's still conflict. A minute later, there's no more conflict. It happens afterwards, after the redemption. What happened by the Alter Rebbe? The very Russian Tsar, Tsar Paul, who was out to, to who saw him as, a, as an enemy of the, of, the, of, the, of the state and was threatening to kill him with capital punishment, was so baffled by the holiness of the Alter Rebbe, by his extraordinary wisdom and godly light that emanated, that he himself recognized that the Alter Rebbe is a tzaddik and correct and right, and he supported him. But that happened after the redemption. But here, he says there is a deeper meaning. The deeper meaning of Pada B'Shalim means that the redemption itself is, the Pada itself is Bishali. And that fits much better with the words. Not Pada V'achakach Shalom. Pada, which means redemption, and then it leads up to Shalom to peace. But Pada B'Shalim, that the redemption itself takes place in a manner of peace. So what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that you don't even have to fire a shot. You don't even have to fire a bullet. That means that the manner of the redemption itself happens where there is a certain... How can it be? If you have an enemy and the enemy opposes you, how can it be that your redemption happens in a manner of peace that the, that the enemy is not fighting anymore. At the time of the redemption, a second before that you need. And the point over here is, let me give it an example. The Jewish people, for instance, right now have a lot of enemies. And we can see that. A lot of enemies. We saw it in Israel. And then we see it in all the people who are supporting Terrorists and murderers who butchered babies and did the most horrific things to hundreds of innocent people in the most despicable way. Yet, millions of people in the world find it to be something that they can support. The city of Fresno, in all of its despicability tomorrow, 
is going to raise a Palestinian flag. So you're going to say, well, the Palestinians are also suffering. I ask you a stupid question because I'm getting angry right now. That's what I'm saying this. If the Palestinians are suffering, can you explain to me why they didn't stand up the next day and coming out en masse and said, how despicable is it what you just did in Israel? That you butchered babies, you threw babies into ovens? Why didn't they come marching on the streets and demanding that all these hostages should be returned? Where were they? Why instead, when the hostages were marched through the streets, little boys, they were little children, they were taunting these kids. They were throwing rocks at them and hitting them and beating a little kid who's been taken away, a six-year-old kid who's been dragged into a different country. If they're so innocent and they're so good and they're so wonderful, why weren't they there? Why haven't they been there? It's because they're all part of this monstrous ideology that has a, a, an infinite, limitless, core essential hatred to the Jewish people to the point that they want Jews killed for no reason at all, just because of pure evil. This is what, this is what it is. So now you're dealing already weeks later and you're going to stand up for the innocent Palestinians. Shouldn't you be calling first for the Palestinians to say, if you're so innocent, at least now after two months of, 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 of civilians girls and babies even that are still stuck in gaza why aren't why aren't you screaming and shouting from the streets to your to to, to your own people give them back imagine if i'm going to explain something if israel would go into gaza and take children and take innocent women and drag them into israel and abuse them and beat them and hurt them for no reason i'm not talking about fighters i'm talking about pure innocent people if israel would do that do you understand that the entire Israel would be standing in the streets and protesting their own soldiers and throwing eggs at their soldiers and screaming, what are you doing? Because these are decent people, good people. So Fresno tomorrow is going to raise and put on the, in the middle of their city a Palestinian flag while Jewish blood is still spilling because the, atro the atrocities are not over. That means you're supporting evil. Literally supporting you. So, okay. So what do we see from here? And this is all I just got carried away. We see from here that there are still millions of Jew haters around the world. Who, because it's the Jewish people, and so has been already for, for, for thousands of years, that there is a cancer that has plagued humanity. And I know God was the one who orchestrated it because, but there is a cancer that has plagued humanity for thousands of years that the Jewish people are hated. And I know there are many people that are not Jewish who listen to this class who you don't feel like this at all. And that's because you're blessed people, because you're beautiful people, and you're godly people, and goodness fills your soul. But for whatever reason, there is a lot of people. And we're talking about millions of people who have an animosity to, to the Jewish people. And they hated the Jewish people when the Jewish people were rich. And they hated the Jewish people when they were poor. They hated the Jewish people when they were successful. And they hated the Jewish people when they were not successful. They hated the Jewish people when the Jewish people were religious. 
and they hated the Jewish people when the Jewish people tried to assimilate and were not religious. They hated us in every single possible way. It's an irrational hatred that just sits as a cancer, as an anti-Semitic cancer, and it's responsible for 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 unspeakable brutalities and 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 but here's the thing what's really really astounding is if you look at history and when you see how much the jewish people contributed to the well-being of mankind how many good things the jewish people brought to the world how much blessing the jewish people brought to the world and yet not with, we're not talking about a race of criminals we're not talking about a race that brings curses and dark stuff and are, are vile and despicable. I'm not saying there are criminals amongst the Jewish people as well. And it, but that's not the majority. The majority of the Jewish people have always brought blessing and have brought economic growth and, 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 and innovation and all kinds of improvements to the world. It's unbelievable in every section of life, in science, in literature, in medicine, in religion, in faith in God, in philanthropy, in kindness. And it's like, it's not even possible. It, it's so crazy. So then you'll wonder, but there's a hatred. Okay. Then hatred exists. The Jewish people are persecuted. So let me put it this way. Jewish people are persecuted. The truth of it, and the truth of it has to be said, because the Jewish people are a godly people. And God set up the world that until Messianic times, the world fights godliness. That's the reality. God set up the world that God is fought against. So the people fight godliness. If you fight godliness, you fight the Jew, you fight the Torah, you fight morality, and you fight the Jewish people. That's the way it is. So there is a hatred against Israel, against the Jewish people. Now, but the reason why people fight godliness is because they don't see the brightness and the beauty and the goodness of godliness. They don't see it. Because God keeps his light dim and dark. Once God will reveal himself to the world fully, and people will then see that God is the source of all light and the source of all blessing and the source of all pleasure, and deeper than that, the source of all of existence and of all of reality. And everything anybody has that they cherish about themselves is given to them from God, and God is the reality of everything. So people will become an instantly madly in love with God. So when you want to know what's going to happen the moment Mashiach comes, the moment Mashiach comes, God's truth will suddenly reveal itself in creation. And people will experience two powerful experiences. One will be enormous fear. And I'm not talking fear of punishment. Yes, those who deserve punishment will fear the punishment. But the fear won't be fear of punishment. It will be awe, trembling in awe of the awesomeness of the infinite reality of God that is everywhere and present in front of our eyes. But at the same time, people will experience an inexplainable, 
a super rational love and desire to open themselves up and to experience more and more and more and more and more of the deliciousness and the infinite sweetness and ecstasy and bliss of this absolute essence of everything. The world, everybody will become crazy and mad with love. For who forgot? So suddenly, the animosity to Hashem will give away instantly into a complete transformation of love. So now imagine this. Imagine this for one second. All those horrible, horrible people that are caught. I'm not going to say horrible people. I believe many of them are not horrible people. Just completely misguided. Young people in colleges that are thinking they're fighting for for morality. They're fighting for, for the underdog, the poor Palestinian people. They're thinking they're fighting for, for a good cause. Okay? And they see the Jew as the Jew being the source of evil, the Jew being the monster, the Jew being the Nazi. Right? Um, the reason they can feel this way is because godliness is concealed. Since godliness is concealed, the light that's on the Jewish face is also concealed. So when you look at a Jew, you, you see you, you don't see the godly light. You sense the godliness in it, but you don't see the beauty of it, the light of it. I'm just imagining something right now. It seems from all the prophets that once Mashiach comes, the nations will experience enormous, enormous respect and awe and love for the Jewish people that will be indescribable. That's what there's many, many prophecies. Talking about the people that have been so downtrodden are suddenly going to be lifted up. They're going to be elevated to the highest status. So imagine this, imagine this happening. Imagine Moshiach walks in and suddenly the true light and goodness that's in the soul of every Jew starts to shine. And suddenly you don't see any, you, all you see is this brilliant fountain of blessing, of light, of wisdom, of goodness issuing forth from every single man and woman of, of the Jewish people. The reason I'm saying the Jewish people, it will happen for all of humanity, but... The, the Jewish people are the headquarters of godliness in this world. That's why we've been hated. And because just like the hatred came about because of the Jew carrying the seed of godliness into the, into the world, the, ad, the admiration and the love and the, and the, and the excitement that is going to be shown towards Israel is going to relate to the fact that God is going to remove the mask. Just like God is going to remove the mask that is concealing God, God is also going to remove the mask that is concealing the godliness that's within every single Jew. And suddenly, the Jew is going to become the most attractive being in the world. 
Every Jew is going to have millions of fans. And the Jew is not going to use it, God forbid, for his ego. The Jew will use it to connect to all these people, to teach, to inspire, to love, to connect, to elevate, to share blessings. So why am I speaking about this? Because we're talking about redemption and peace. Imagine when the redemption will come. The redemption itself is not going to require. How will evil change? How will that which is fighting holiness, fighting godliness, how will it change? It will change because when suddenly the face of holiness will open up to its true light, whatever is dark won't be able to oppose it anymore. Darkness will suddenly, or all those that are on the side of darkness, will suddenly see who are they fighting against. They're fighting against the source of all blessings, the source of all light, the source of all kindness, the source of all compassion, the source of all goodness. So suddenly what's going to happen it's going to be Padabasholim. The redemption is going to come in peace because the enemy won't be an enemy. So it's not like there will be a redemption and then peace will come. The redemption itself will happen by the unholiness opening up its eyes and seeing, seeing the truth of Kedusha, of holiness. That's Padabasholim. Like it happened by the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe, the Tsar, suddenly started seeing the true light. First, he was looking at the Alter Rebbe, at, at Rav Shneir Zalman of Liyadi, from a distance. He heard there's a rabbi. He heard all kinds of rumors about him. So he painted in his own mind a very dark picture about this person. After spending 50 days with him, he had him in, in, in Petersburg. He interrogated him himself, met him. He suddenly realized that the image that he had from him was a fake image. And that's why he was opposing him. Even though the Tsar was a not, a, not, a, not, not, a, not, not such a good person, the Tsars of Russia were pretty evil. But even evil couldn't, couldn't help but to love and admire the Alter Rebbe. Because the Alter Rebbe's mask was removed. And he can see the true beauty and godly light of this individual. He can see him for what he really is. So then Padabishalim, the redemption happened in peace. Without a war, without a war without having to defeat it. That's the point. So what we learned in the last few weeks was that this entire war between good and evil. Oh, oh, oh you know, so, so let, me, let, me, let me, before I bring it, I bring it back to our personal conflicts because that's really where, it's, where the mimer is going to explain this in our own selves because we have a dark side. Within ourselves, we have a, 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 an enemy our own animal, materialistic, unholy self that fights against our godly self, against our soul. And we, wake, we make our way through life battling with this darkness within ourselves, the internal battle. And we're talking over here about various different levels of winning this battle. So before we get to the personal battle, the concept that I just explained that the unholy suddenly melts away, its, its opposition suddenly di dissipates because when goodness reveals itself, when godliness reveals itself for what it truly is to the point that even the unholy can recognize its, its enormous blessing and its goodness, then there's no opposition. And obviously it becomes an ally. 
it, 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 its entire thing just fades away instantly. That's the idea. So we see that historically, let, let's see this play itself out historically. Initially, in the earlier times of history, um, when the Jewish people who represented monotheism, belief in God, first began to make their presence and their and their imprint into the world. Okay, the entire world is filled with pagans. The entire world is living in entire corrupted, her, um, um, anti-godly life, primitive type of a life, and such despicable bru- bru- brutalities were committed two, three thousand years ago. The way cultures butchered each other. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. The amount of cruelty, the amount of viciousness. You know what you saw Hamas doing was natural, I think, 3,000 years ago. Certain tribes would attack other tribes, massacre their children, rip their, and, and do the most horrific things to their women and kill the, and, and, and they, 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 they literally, what would they do? One of the things they would do, they would scalp people. They would literally rip their 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 heads off. They would cut the they would cut under the skin in the head, get their fingers on there and rip off their. I mean, you you wonder what, what kind of what kind of horrors people were capable of doing, and that was normal. And that is because there was no sense of 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 of, of dignity for the human being, because there was no sense of that the human is. God's representative in this world. A human has a higher existence. So people were just living on such an animalistic basis. And they had gods, they had many gods. The whole point of the God was the God that serves me, not me serving my God. And if I serve my God, it's because if I serve my God, God will help me and have my God. I mean, the whole situation was such a, such a corrupt environment. Okay, that was thousands of years ago. Now the Jewish people come to the world with a set of a deeper understanding of existence, an awareness of one God, and a commitment to serve this one God. And God gives them teachings of morality and ethics and respect for life and, not, and, 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 and ways of behavior that, are, that God intended humans to behave with. So when Jews came onto the scene and started doing this, what do you think? Many, many, many people's around them were really, really, really angry. We're, we're very, we're, we're disturbed by it. We're not happy with this new ideologic, this new ideology coming to the world. It disturbed their way of life. And they weren't going to have it. So the Jews faced much opposition. How did the Jewish people win their battles? They won their battles throughout, not through their enemies recognizing who they were, they had to fight and they had to defeat their enemies. That's why King David, he fought wars. He fought wars. In the wars that he fought, he had divine assistance and he was able to crush his enemies. And then there were times that evil won. <clears throat> it worked both ways. If you look, if you read through scripture, there was times like this, times like this. And when the Jews repented and they evoked God's mercy, 
that holiness overpowered the unholy. And so it was back and forth. So there was a battle. There was a war going on. And holiness sometimes would triumph, sometimes it would lose. Then came, so King David, and this time, this idea of holiness battling the unholy was kind of characterized by King David's time. And when we say King David's time, we mean from Moses until King David. Moses too had to fight wars. The giants came to fight him. Og and Sichon, these are two giants that came to fight him. Amalek came to fight against Moshe and the Jewish people. So Jews were fought with major enemies to fight. Joshua had to fight the empires living in the Canaanite nations to conquer. He had to fight. There was wars, wars opposing a holy, godly people. And these wars continued throughout the reign of King David. King Saul fought wars against the Philistines and so on and so forth. Then we reached the next stage. What was the next stage? King Solomon. When King Solomon built the first temple, King Solomon was, he reached, King Solomon reached <clears throat> a whole new level. <clears throat> sure, there's hot water. King Solomon reached a whole new level of world influence of how the unholy responded to holiness. Because of his enormous, because King Solomon was a vessel for enormous divine light. Remember I said earlier, when holiness turns on its, its light, when you turn up the volume, there is in the, it's not, it's not, it's not it? It's not hot? Okay, no, one second, the, the chinik, the, the kitty kettle. It's not hot? What? The more holiness reveals itself, then the less opposition there is. King Solomon was the 15th generation since Abraham. What does that mean? We reached the epitome of godly light coming upon Israel. Because Israel is compared to the moon. Abraham is considered the birth of the moon. We studied about this in, a, in another class. So the Jewish people are recipients of God's light, and they shine it onto the world. Abraham is the first generation. There's a little bit of light. Isaac is the second generation. There's more light. Jacob is the third generation. There's godliness. There's already more light. Seventh generation is Moses. It's already like the moon is already halfway full by the seventh day. But King Solomon is the 15th generation. So the moon is receiving God's light to the fullest. And when the moon is shining with such light, the enemies of the Jewish people were blown away by the enormous brightness of King Solomon. 
there was so clearly a divine presence upon him that even evil, that was still evil, evil wasn't rectified yet, but even evil had to surrender itself without a fight, without a war. There was no fight, there was no physical battle. And the reason there was no physical, King Solomon was called Solomon. That's what God told, and the prophet told King David, you should name your son Shlomo. Because he said, because peace will be in his time. King Solomon, his entire reign of kingdom, didn't fight any wars. Quite on the contrary. People came. There is hot water, no? What happened? It's not plugged in? What? No, 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 I have, I have. So King Solomon... Um, Shlomo Amelech, because he radiated such godly light, there was the, the, the unholy wouldn't dare oppose him. They wouldn't dare oppose him. They stayed back. However, however, even King Solomon's light, even the even King Solomon's light did not transform the unholy for it to forever and ever, ever, for it forever to change its, 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 uh, its, uh, its opposition. Shlomo Melech didn't fight any wars, right? Right? Shlomo Melech didn't fight. What happened? Because when people saw his incredible light, they got scared of him. But even he did not make that the unholy would completely dissipate and, and, and be gone forever. Because after King Solomon, what happened? When the, moon, when the moon's light, when the Jewish people's light and the light of godliness started getting a little weaker and dimmer, like the moon begins to, to, to fade after the 15th day, it started getting a little weaker. So the unholiness increased. By the time... Sitkiyahu, who is the last of the Davidic kings, 15 generations later, there's no more godly light shining in this world. And what happens? The Babylonians come. Evil becomes so aggressive and becomes so strong that it can march on to Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And you see, evil came back. And tonight is Hanukkah, for instance. So we know that even when we built the second temple, the entire Second Temple period was, was characterized as a time of foreign, foreign forces trying to subdue the Jewish people. First, it was the, 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 the Jewish um, um, kingdom in Israel was supported by the Persian Empire, but was still under their thing. And then the Greeks came along, and Alexander the Great, and the Jewish people somehow he 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 kind of saw value in in this in the in the Second Temple and in the Jewish people he respected their knowledge and so on and so forth, but it didn't take too long until the Greeks also started messing with Israel, trying to impose their 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 Greek um, their Greek ideology over the Jewish people, and and again so the Jews had to fight, and that was the miracle of Hanukkah, we overcame our enemies. But it wasn't a once-for-all defeat. The Maccabees went out there, defeated the, 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 the dark forces, but they weren't gone. 
they still remain, meaning maybe the Greeks were God, but then the Romans came along. So darkness did not, was not, was not destroyed and was not nullified forever and ever. So that means that in all these generations, it was not a real Pada B'Shalem. By David HaMelech, by King David's era, it for sure wasn't Pada B'Shalem. It wasn't the redemption in peace. Because he, his redemption came with wars. He won the battles. Those who fought against him were defeated. But it was bloody. It was through a conflict. King Solomon, whose name indicates Shalom, peace. In his days, there was peace. Because his holy presence was so powerful that the unholy would not even dare to fight him. Remember? Would not even dare to fight him. But it was only as long as King Solomon was alive. The moment that enormous light was burnt out, the unholy reared its head. What does that mean? That even while they were silent, they weren't, trans- they weren't transformed. They were only muted, but they still existed. They were hiding in their caves. Satanic dark forces still existed, but they were, they were subdued. They were scared without a fight. So it's shalom, it's peace. And King Solomon had padab shalom, you redeemed in peace my soul, but not the true meaning of peace. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Mashiach. Because when Mashiach will come, what's going to happen? A much deeper light is going to shine forth from Israel. One that is going to be so powerful and so essential that it's going to uncover the truth. That's the point of Mashiach's light. Mashiach's light is not inspirational. Mashiach's light is not influential. It's not some kind of an illumination that wows everybody. Mashiach uncovers absolute truth. That's what Mashiach does. Mashiach reveals the essence. The essence of God is revealed in Moshiach's soul. And since the essence of God is revealed in Moshiach's soul, what does then Moshiach do to the Jewish people? Inside the heart of the Jewish people, he reveals not our light, but he unplugs our essence. And it's always there, but not revealed. We always have the essence, but we're not but we're not experiencing, we're not functioning from the essence. Mashiach comes and unplugs the essence in us. And as the essence of the Jewish soul reveals itself and comes to the surface, it has a magical effect on the entire world that it brings out the essence of all of existence. And what's the essence of all of the existence, God? So what's the essence of even, of even the dark things in this world? Even the most dark things in the world, their essence is God. And suddenly when the essence is unplugged, then you, then, then, then you can't fight it anymore. You can't fight God because God is your, your essence. God is the substance of everything. Suddenly everything is inherently transformed. Everything is metamorphosized from its deepest place. That's the transformation. And that's what we're going to learn about today. The deepest level of of, of of peace. Peace comes when there's no more war because suddenly 
inherently everything transforms. We're gonna, I, I only spoke about this very little because we're going to learn about it inside the discourse today. The third level. In the last two classes, we discussed the first and the second level. The experience of battle. We exp- we, and we also discussed the experience of shocking the enemy with enormous light. And, and then a much deeper level. So let's translate that into our own, our own conflict. Because there is the macro and there is the micro. That's how this discourse works. It explains things historically. And that's why this class is called the final battle. Within and without. Without is the big world. To see how holiness and the unholy are, are, are wrestling and are in conflict with each other and, and, and how the world kind of works out this conflict as it makes its way through, as it reaches, as it reaches different levels throughout all of history. Good and evil battle with each other. But ultimately, goodness will win because truth has to prevail, right? That's on the, on the global scale. But each and every one of us is the entire world. Every single one of us has this battle going on inside our hearts. So now the question becomes, when we fight our own evil, we can fight it on three levels. And here is the main theme that we were learning in the discourse. The lowest level of the battle is when we turn on, what are we battling? We have a godly soul, a godly influence in our life, in our life that wants to live a godly life. A godly life means that I live my life in service of something bigger than myself. I live my life in service of God's purpose. That's what it means to live a godly life, to live in accordance to God's purpose. That means my life is not here for me to have a good time, for me to just pleasure myself and just make myself happy, but I am here to be an instrument to facilitate something of a higher godly purpose, which comes through me. And I'm serving that purpose. I'm serving something bigger than myself. And that bigger self ultimately is God. And that's what it means to be a godly life. We all have an influence of godliness. That means we all have an innate um, drive to live this godly existence, okay? In other words, when you wake up in the morning, you have two lot. You can live the life of your godly soul. So we learn in Hasidus that what's pushing us to live this higher life, we might refer to that as our better selves, our higher selves. We tune into a deeper self that wants to serve something bigger. So I can live my day thinking about how I can contribute to the world, I can use my energies to do good things. Or, or God forbid, we have another influence in ourselves. We sometimes call it evil inclination. But on a broader sense, it's referred to as selfish living. Not necessarily evil, just a selfish living. And in terminology of Hasidism, mystical terminology, it's called the animal soul. That means a a being that is a bit narcissistic, 
that just wants to enjoy itself. That's all. So I live to have myself feel good. I look to enjoy myself, to have instant gratification and to squeeze as much physical and and uh, enjoyments I can from my life and get recognition and fame and money. But these are all selfish interests. It's not I'm serving something bigger than myself. I'm bowing down to myself. That's what it is. So I'm locked in my own self. So I can either be locked in my own self and that's the that's the drive of my animal of my animal soul. Or I can live the, the life of my godly soul in which my aspiration and my entire, my entire uh, energy is to serve something bigger than myself. So now the question is, and this is where we're, where we're learning in the past two weeks, at which level is this influence coming in? Because these two influences and they clash with each other. Every day we experience the battle. Sometimes we, for example, you, 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 you had a thought to do something good. I don't know. You had a thought. You were able to go out and volunteer. Give a simple example. You wanted to go volunteer. Someone asked you, they say they're packing food to deliver to people that are hungry. Now, you had your lunch already, so you're not hungry. But there are people out there that are hungry. And they asked you to come. And someone said to you, I'm going, do you want to come? And you were inspired. You said you're going to go. But then something you notice that on, on, on Netflix, there's a, there's, a, there's a good movie playing at 2 o'clock. And, uh, you know, it's a, I don't know, it might be an action movie. And, you know, I've caught your interest. And there's a voice inside of you that says, you know, well, why should I go out? I have to get dressed. And I have to go out. And I have to go there. And I have to stand there. I mean, for what purpose? What am I, what am I doing? I'm like, okay, so people, you know what? Someone else will take care of that. I just want to lay in my bed, eat popcorn, right? And, 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 and watch this movie. I'll enjoy myself. So, what, see, that, so here's a conflict. The next hour, you can either live a higher self or you can live a selfish self. So it's the animal soul versus the godly soul. So now the question becomes, what's the fuel of the argument? Now we're going to see what's fueling the argument of your godly soul. On the lowest level is the, is the level of you're going to make arguments you're going to make arguments, intellectual arguments, why you should be, why you should do something godly. And that is, you'll explain to yourself, that well, life has to be more meaningful. And that if God gave me life, he probably wants me to use it for something good. And that I can make a difference. And maybe I think a little deeper and realize that it, how awesome it is that I can serve a creator that's, that is infinite. And if, if I do this, God will have satisfaction for me. Or whatever your, whatever your reason is, I know on a simple level, you can just say, I will feel good. If I stay in bed and I watch the movie, I'll feel crappy and dark. But if I'm going to get up and I'm going to do something, on the end of the day, I'm going to feel so wonderful and good. You can, but whatever those arguments are, you're using arguments, reasoning. You're using reasoning to fuel your energy, to fight your gravitational pull that wants you to stay plopped in the couch and do nothing and to push you off your couch and get you out to go do something good. Now, that kind of reasoning, guess what happens? You can create those reasonings, but you'll also have counter-reasonings. 
which means the animal soul will start giving all kinds of explanation. It's cold outside. You can catch a cold if you go. And you never know. And maybe it's whatever. You didn't sleep last night enough. You're a little tired. You need to take care of yourself. And you need to... <laughs> He'll make the best arguments. And that you did enough already. You know, you go every time to volunteer. Let someone else go. Share the mitzvah with someone else. If you go every time, other people don't go. Whatever kind of mind. He's brilliant. He'll come up with the best excuses and the best arguments. So we learned in the earlier class. That means that you're fighting on a level of holy reasoning will fight the unholy reason. And, and, and it could be holy reasoning will win. Could be. Now, we learned in the earlier classes that at the time of prayer, that's what you're supposed to do. Prayer is when you're supposed to create the holy reasoning for the whole day, the inspiration for the whole day. You're supposed to meditate on godliness and discover reasons of why you can inspire yourself to want to live a, a holy Jewish life or a holy, selfless, more, um, more idealistic existence today. But remember we learned that after prayer is over or even during prayer, what is the animal soul going to do? It's going to try to shoot you down with all kinds of negative thoughts because it wants, it doesn't want you to live that holy life. But the point over here is the two of them are even because you're using reason. And reason is fought back by unholy reasoning. Or even if it's not fought back by <coughs> unholy reasoning, because the animal soul is not going to be too logical. The animal soul is not going to be too reasonable. It's not going to be too logical. But he's still going to counter your holy arguments with unholy emotions. Unholy desires. You created within yourself a love for goodness, a love for a mitzvah, a love for charity, a love to help people. Well, you can experience a counter love, a love for something materialistic. Uh, but the, this fight of this is called the fight of nefesh ruach neshama. This is called what we learned in the last few classes, koiches pnimiyim. The internal powers of your godly soul. Your godly soul that has become invested in your human faculties. In other words, you are using your human faculties to inspire you based on now why are your human faculties speaking such lofty ideas? Because you have a godly soul. It's a godly soul. It's a divine being. But it's a divine being camouflaged in human, in human powers. So you're using your human thinking. Now, just like we have holy hum, human thinking, we have unholy human thinking. So our holy human thinking can clash with and wrestles and it fights. Like we learned last week, the battle between Esau and Yaakov's, Yaakov and Esau's Malach, Esau's angel, they're wrestling all night. This is one level of war. Even when we win, we learned last week, even when we win this battle, first of all, it can be maybe only temporarily. Secondly, even when you win, you come out wounded because you experience the back and forth of the unholy. Then there's a much better way to fight a war. A higher way. That, by the way, this first level is called the battles of King David. You're literally engaging the enemy. 
and there's a higher way. You fight the battle like King Solomon. What does that mean? Instead of using your power of your mind, of your intelligence, to become the source of inspiration and drive in your life, to create a holy drive, to overcome the animalistic drive. In other words, instead of using human reasoning, the nefesh ruach neshama, which are the powers vested in your human mind, in your human condition, go much deeper than that. Watch this. Raise yourself up to your pure divine energies. There are certain powers, certain, certain, our soul, our godly soul, not the whole soul is vested in the body. Most of the soul hovers above the body, which means cannot be fathomed by human reasoning. So what does that mean? So mostly it's the subconscious, but it doesn't mean it has to be subconscious. You can open yourself up and hear the voice of your soul that's beyond, beyond your human faculties. You can hear the divine calling of your soul. How does, what does that sound like? The divine calling of your soul is that you can experience your soul's song. The soul is singing to God. The soul wants to be connected to God with a, with a super rational desire. Our soul is not interested in getting close to God because it has an explanation, because it has a reason, because it has a calculation. Our soul is of God. Because it is of God, it loves God, and it seeks to attach itself to God's will. And whatever God wants, it pursues with how much energy? With limitless energy. So what are you basically doing? What are you basically doing to experience this? In order to experience this, you have to peel away, you have to peel away your mind and you have to, you have to allow the unfiltered soul to like emerge into your consciousness. Now, how do you do this? It's either you merit it or you don't merit it. I know there's a lot of people who listen to my class. I read the comments. I know I don't answer always on the comments, but I do read a lot of the comments. Um, and I'm amazed that I can tell that a lot of the listeners of this class, especially those who come on Thursday night, are super sensitive spiritual giants, really. And I'm sometimes amazed at the enormity of the energies that people are speaking of. But what I really see is that you have people that simply tune in to powerful spiritual experiences that they can't even explain. But it's almost like this energy is like taking them and lifting them up with desires that creates a certain madness, a certain like melting energy where you just want to melt into something infinite. And you get frustrated with the darkness of your own limitations. And there are super spiritual people like that. So on a Matzah Shabbos, which means Saturday night, the past Saturday night, I was talking this concept. I was talking by the Fabrengan here. And I was saying, this is what Sadiqim, righteous individuals, especially the, the great Hasidic masters, they experienced this maddening love to God that was not based on reason. It was like they could experience the pure, the pure, infinite desire of their soul. 
This is coming from the transcendental part of our soul. Now, when you use that energy, and that energy is revealed into your consciousness, and you experience this infinite powerful desire to God, the desire to do a mitzvah is so magnificent. It is so strong. It's exponentially stronger. It's literally exponentially stronger than when, you, when you're using your human faculties to create your inspiration. Because you, human is limited. So you're, whatever you will create is very limited. This is a much deeper level of soul. This is the difference in Shema between loving God b'chol levavcha or loving God b'chol nafshecha. B'chol levavcha means with your, all your heart, with your internal powers, using your mind to inspire your heart, using your human faculties to drive the inspiration and the drive. Here you're going deeper. You're loving God with your entire soul more than what you can conceive in your limited human faculties of your mind. It's almost like an out-of-body experience almost. While you experience it, while you're in the body. It's almost like a certain surge to God takes over that you lose control over. it. I would say I never experienced such love to God. The only time I do, I'll, I'll, I'll be... The only time I experience these experiences is during the 10 days of repentance between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. If I'm up alone in the middle of the night and I take out Psalms and I say Psalms, I say Tehillim, and it's very strange. Either it works or it doesn't work. Sometimes I try. You can't force it. I sigh and I say the Tehillim and nothing moves. It doesn't open. And I'll try for a half an hour. I'll see it doesn't work. I'll go back to sleep. It's just not going. It's like it doesn't happen. Sometimes I start saying, and before I before I can even know what happens, suddenly it's like my soul bursts open and I'll weep and I'll cry uncontrollably, sometimes for a half an hour, 45 minutes. And it's like I, I feel like there's something in me that just burst open. And if it doesn't happen the entire 10 days of tshuva, I try to make it happen at least Rosh Hashanah by night, Yom Kippur, uh, like, or Shabbos Shuvah, like, a very, during those days, because you know, those are the times when you're more privy for that to happen. The soul is closer. God is very close. And it's meant to be times that your deeper self can emerge into your consciousness. But if it doesn't happen in Rosh Hashanah, and it doesn't happen to tend it has to happen by me. It must. Yom Kippur by night. That's why I don't go home, Yom Kippur. I always stay in Shul. I sleep on the couch over there. And I make sure... <laughs> That automatically I'll wake up in the middle of the night when no one is here. I'm alone. It's just me and the shul. And I'm just alone. And I state psalms. And then I can go through an entire box of tissues. Because <laughs> I just can sob uncontrollably. And it's my deepest moment with God. And I know it's not, it's almost like it's not my conscious self. It's not my regular self. It's like my soul opens up at, from the deepest core. And at that moment, I just want to be close. And I never want to separate. I just want to be one with him. And it comes through the pain of all the times when I, when I realize my life is not consistent with the godly. When I, when, I, when I allow my unholy self to like control my existence, control my decisions. And I get frustrated and it hurts. And that pain bursts open. 
Sometimes it ex I experience as it a pain for the Jewish people, for the suffering of exile. How long are we going to be in exile? But I feel it's not my personal, it's nothing to do with my head. It's like, it's like I use my mind and meditation a little bit, but the point over here is not to stay in my mind. The point over here is to open up, like to turn the key to the deeper soul and allow the doors of the superconscious to spring open. And then the dam, this powerful godly dam breaks open. And I know in those minutes, I'm not the human self that I am. I'm allowing the spark of God that's in me to shine. And for me, that's Yom Kippur. And if God forbid I can go by the 10 days of tshuva and not experience that, I literally would feel dead the entire year. But because I have that every year, that experience from when I'm a teenager, this is my entire preciousness of the entire year. So for me, this is, but it shouldn't be only Yom Kippur. People should be able to experience these super powerful experiences of soul energy gushing forth beyond intelligence, beyond understanding, beyond reasoning. What happens to your animal soul when such a powerful emergence, what happens to the animal soul? What happens to the animal soul is it is blown out of the park. It cannot counter such light. What happens is it's completely bang. It's not like the argument that goes back and forth, what happens when you inspire yourself with your human faculty. There you can experience counter-arguments. The drive can be driven because we have two types of drives. We have, holy, we have a holy soul, we have a dark soul. So the holy soul gets to give its arguments, the unholy soul gives. But when you open up that deep reservoir of depth of soul and allow that to come forth, the animal soul is just so shocked that it just, it's, it's silent. However, we learned last week that that's like King Solomon. It's like King Solomon. Because it's not like after the days of King Solomon, we never heard of the animal soul ever again. The animal soul, King Solomon is around, but he dies. And after he dies, what happens? The light starts becoming a little dimmer. And guess who pops back up again? <laughs> the unholy, the evil forces in the world slowly but surely began to pop their heads out of their little little um, uh, um, foxholes or spider holes or whatever they call it. And they, 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 they started popping back up and to the point where they became so powerful that they took over the entire world and the temple was destroyed. King Solomon's temple was destroyed. The other temple was destroyed. And an enormous darkness came over the world for thousands of years. That means they're still around. And now let me put that into my personal life. I can experience these enormous experiences, Yom Kippur. And if I'm lucky, it keeps me in a good, holy, godly place throughout Sukkot, if I'm lucky. Sometimes my animal soul gets impatient already before Sukkot. <laughs> it's just three, four days, and it manages to like, it wants to like, it can't stand that, you know, I decided that my life will be godly, and it tries to fight back. Um, but after Sukkot and after Simchas Torah and after that, Hamas is back on the scene. <laughs> the internal Hamas. Which means that I thought that after I experienced such longing to God, the fire of my godly soul burnt out every other fire. I'll never ever experience a satanic, I don't mean satanic, but a dark desire. I'll never ever want to do a sin again. 
I'll never have any desire for anything that's not godly. And guess what? I find out a few weeks later, a few you know, I have the same cravings that I had the, <laughs> before, before Yom Kippur. Same. The dark stuff come back. Sometimes they come back stronger than they ever were, which is scary. Because <laughs> you wonder. So for a while, they're knocked out. But they'll come back and sometimes uglier than they were even before. You know why? Because they're hungry. <laughs> they haven't been fed for a while. So they've been like, say, they've been emaciated. So now they're seeking to compensate. Which means that uncovering that dimension in your soul is not the ultimate. What do we have to do? We have to unlock even deeper. It's not enough to, do, to unlock the divine light. But basically, there is, what we were saying is like this. There is our divine soul that is, up, that is vested in our human faculties. And speaking to us through our human faculties, that's the lowest level of soul. That's called orpnimi, internal light. And in terms of the levels of soul, that's nefesh, ruach, neshama. Three levels, nefesh, ruach, neshama. These are the two, three levels of soul vested in our human experience. The level that we spoke about before, this level of longing to God that's purely divine, that is not human voice. It's a pure godly voice that's speaking in us. A powerful transcendental surge. That's called chai. The soul has five, five names. Nefesh, ruach, neshama. Chaya, chaya, that's the power of the soul that surrounds the body, bigger than the body. But then there's a, a deeper level of that called Yechida. And as long as we haven't revealed our Yechida, we, ha we haven't won the battle. But when you reveal the Yechida, which is the deepest, deepest level of your existence, you can reveal that in your soul, you'll never have to have, have to battle again. Because everything inside the person will be forever and ever transformed. Your entire unholy psyche will flip over completely. And your entire identity will become absolutely a godly being. You will literally experience yourself forever and ever as a channel of divine. It's almost like God is living through you. You're no more a self other than God. You're just an H, like the, our, our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the matriarchs. They were just purely divine channels. What's so beautiful, as once Mashiach comes, we're all going to live in that consciousness. On a collective level, we have, not, we have not yet reached that point when this deepest truth was unlocked. When I say we haven't yet reached it, I mean, let me explain, I mean for us to experience it in a fully conscious way. Although the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, in order for this to happen, Moshiach needs to be revealed. Since the Rebbe said 30 years ago that Moshiach is revealed already, the Rebbe said that we could reach this level of identification. We really could. But today's days, it still requires a lot of work on our end 
to hopefully lift ourselves up into that Geula state. However, once Mashiach is going to be fully revealed for everybody to see, this is going to become the natural con- consciousness of all of humanity and all of the Jewish people. From there, it's going to trickle into the rest of humanity as well. So what happens? What does this mean? What's this? So it says like this. Nefesh, Ruach, Neshama are invested in the body. Chai is, a, is like a, imagine like a circle around your body of godly light surrounding you. And Yechida is another circle, but a more distant circle. That means it's farther away from our consciousness. What is Yechida? Yechida means unity. What is the difference between Chai and Yechida? So here, here so let's, let's hear deeply what it means. Chai is to experience the drive of the soul, the desire of the soul in its purity. Not being filtered through human, human logic. As we said earlier, not giving yourself explanations why you love God but experiencing your natural love to God that the soul has. The soul in heaven has a love to God. So imagine that we can open ourselves up to that heavenly experience, transcending our human minds and allowing ourselves to experience the pure drive of our soul. What's Yechida? Yechida is not the drive. Yechida is the essence from where the drive comes from. What's the essence? The essence of the soul is that the soul is a piece of God. Now, being that the soul is a piece of God, that's beyond experience. That's not a feeling. It is. The substance of the soul is a piece of God. Now, because it's a piece of God, what type of emanations are going to come from it? When it will emanate something, its emanations will be godly. So when it will, so let's understand something. This piece of God, what's its pleasure? The first experience, first there's essence. Now, what's the first sensation of essence? Once you go out, once the essence emanates some kind of emanation, Essence is beyond emanation. Essence is just what it is. The first experience that comes out of essence is pleasure. So for instance, if, you're a, if, you're a, if you have a soul that comes from light, from God, and is a piece of God, this is very powerful. If you have a soul that is rooted in God and is a piece of God. So what's going to be its pleasure? Its pleasure is going to be in, in God and anything of God. So the pleasure of the essence is it seeks to find pleasure in God. That's all it wants. In God or in anything godly in the world. A mitzvah. Anything or another soul. You love, you love people because you love their souls because every person has a piece of God in it and you love people. And you have a pleasure 
in doing goodness because God is good. So you have an enormous pleasure in being goodness. You have a deep sensation. Now, I want, I want to contrast that. If you have a soul that comes, that's rooted in, in Satan, in satanic darkness, so then what kind of pleasure do you have? The archlipos, God created clipot. No, you have a pleasure. Yeah, but what's the pleasure? The pleasure is in, in evil. There is a pleasure in evil. You can sit, and I'm going to, you say something extreme, you can throw a baby into an oven, a living, beautiful baby into an oven and sit there and laugh while the parents are dying from pain when they're hearing their baby shrieking from the oven. And you can sit there and get pleasure out of it. And you can film it and send it to your parents and say, hey, look, I'm killing Jews. That's when you have a soul that's a malik who's rooted in evil. So the pleasure that comes out is a satanic, dark, horrific pleasure. You wonder why there are people who are sadistic, they have a deep pleasure in, 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 now I'm not saying that. I mean, they're born with an evil soul. We all have two potentials. We all have a little bit of that dark side. The question is which one we choose to follow. Do we, do we open ourselves up from our godly soul or do we open ourselves up from our dark soul? That's the darkness. So the first thing that happens, one second, is there is the essence. One notch away from the essence is pleasure. And you should know that this pleasure that we're talking about is primarily subconscious. It's like the deep underlying pleasure. Like, like when we wonder why we're driven towards certain things. Like all drive of a person. You got, when you, when you think deeply, what's really driving me? Why am I driven for this? Why do I? So if we can do a psychoanalysis of our soul on a very, very deep level, you have to ask yourself, where's my pleasure? What's, what's the silent background pleasure that's driving? Sometimes you don't have an explanation. Why am I doing something? It must be I have a pleasure. Even if I don't feel the pleasure, but there must be there is a pleasure in that thing that's causing me to do it. I'm saying that pleasure is very hidden. There are revealed pleasures. But then there is an ocean of pleasure. It's almost like an ocean of pleasure that's very, very subtle. That's the background. So the godly soul is a piece of God. Its first revelation, which is already not the soul itself, it's the experience of it. It's already, a, it's already an experience that's pleasure. Now pleasure is the source for a more external experience. What's the more external experience? Outside of pleasure, which means closer to our consciousness and to our everyday feelings, that's desire. Desire follows pleasure. Because wherever your pleasure is, that's what you desire. Pleasure is, so to speak, the motor and the fuel of desire. What causes a person to desire? Let me ask you, what, if you desire to learn to study, 
If you want to study, you want to come to this class, you want to study. What's motivating the, 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 the study? It's just because drudge, plain, pure intellectualism? No. If you want to come to this class, it's, it, it, you have a desire. Why is there a desire? Because you know whether you're conscious of it or not, you have a pleasure studying. It, it, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's evoking a, a, a certain deep sensation, a pleasure. It's consistent with your pleasure. So there's essence, there's pleasure, and then there is desire. The, and then, after desire and pleasure, begins the part of ourselves that, that is already considered human, which means our, our intelligence, then it, then the entire, then there's a filter after desire, there's a filter. So therefore pleasure and desire can be a lot, can kind of hang out mainly in our subconscious or superconscious. Then there's the, there's the mind, there's the reasoning. That's when it starts coming into vessels, containers. There's reasoning and that creates emotions and emotions drive thought and thought drives speech. And speech drives behavior. So this is like this entire, you realize how your energy of your soul trickles down through these various different levels. Okay? I just want to finish this thought. Okay? So we have essence. We have essence. And then we have experience. Experience of what? Transcendental experience, which involves, which has two parts to it. Pleasure and desire. And Kabbalistically, that's called Keter, the crown. Because it hovers above us. And then there is Chabad, Chagas, Nehim, the ten faculties. That's, that's the filterization into consciousness. So now, just, just let's, let's, let's take this a step deeper. So now, what happens is like this. When we unplug, when we unplug the high level in our neshama, in other words, when, when we open ourselves up to more than just our mind, and we allow ourselves to experience this desire to God, what are we feeling? What are we feeling? We are feeling the radiance of our soul, the experience of our soul but we still didn't experience the essence of our soul. It's our essence, but it's closed from our consciousness. But then there is deeper. When a, certain, a person can dig so deep into their divine soul, see, the work, our work is to make our physical bodies vessels for our spirit. So our spiritual soul to, to be able to, to, to manifest in our body. The question is, how much do we work? How, how much are we becoming a vessel? So the more mitzvot we do, the more Torah we study, the more we become a vessel for deeper levels of our soul to manifest in ourselves. What's the ultimate prize? The ultimate prize is when your yechida, which is called yechida because it's one with God, your essence 
appears into your consciousness. And then what? You don't desire to be close to God. You don't have a burning desire. You are Him. You are a godly being. Once you identified as a godly being, you are a piece of God in this world. That's your identity? Then what? As being a divine being, there's nothing else in life but your divine life. There's no conflict. There's nobody else. And here's the deal. You might say, well, you have another identity. The animal soul, the dark soul also has an essence. Because we see the animal soul also has super rational desires. We have a holy soul, we have an animal soul. So we might say just like the holy soul, because it says, there's a verse that says, one opposite the other God created. So the holy is opposed by the unholy. So the animal soul, we said earlier, just like you have holy arguments, the animal soul can make, can make animalistic arguments, selfish arguments. Right? How about this infinite desire, this passion, this desire, this like super rational craving? Well, to some degree, the animal soul has that a lot. That's when a person has, for example, you know, when a person has an addiction, what is an addiction? An addiction means a person is suddenly possessed by a dark force to do terrible things or negative things or harmful things. Intellectually, they know they're harming themselves. They know that what they're doing is killing them. It's harming them. It's either going to shorten their life. It's going to destroy them. They can't stop. It's almost like there's a drive bigger than them that's driving them. A dark force that the trap. It's like this powerful force, like a wind, almost like a wind, that when that wind blows, whenever that wind starts blowing, they have no control. And the wind picks them up and takes them wherever the wind wants. Even if they at that very moment know that this is against everything they stand for, they can't control. That seems very much like what I was describing earlier when you, well, I discussed about in 10 days of tshuva, I open my, you open yourself up, you feel these powerful waves of godly yearning you can experience powerful waves of ungodly yearning. Yes, you can. The level of super rational, of chai, which means the encompassing energy of the, of the godly soul has a counterpart, the encompassing energy of the animal soul. And that's probably the reason why when you can have, we discussed earlier, that Shlomo HaMelech stays, there was no klipa, and then they came back again. Or why after Rosh Hashanah you experience Yom Kippur, you experience these deep, powerful yearnings for God, and then suddenly you can experience like unholy cravings all over. It's probably because, especially when the unholy is, a person allows themselves for their unholy side to develop into super rational um, forces. Because here's the thing, if you nip it in the bud, it doesn't become such a monster. But if you allow it, you feed it, you feed it, you feed it, it can become a, a monster that becomes completely uncontrollable. That can happen. Okay. And that's why it says that your holy chaya, which is the encompassing energy of holiness, 
could be confronted or could be in, negated by the unholy encompassing energy. And that's why it can come back. However, the level of, the level of Yechida, the level of Yechida, which is essence, which means the godly soul that is one with God. Remember we said, Yechida, Yechida is your essence. It is one with God. Is there a Yechida on the dark side? So I said earlier, people whose essence is evil, then their pleasure is evil. And their desire then becomes for evil things. But is there any truth to that? That's the question. Let's say, yeah, okay, this is a person who has a yechida, has an essential bond with unholiness. But the entire unholy is what? Is there true substance to the dark side? There's no real substance to it. In other words, true, one can have a connection to the unholy and, their, and, the, and, and you might say their essence of their being has become like, is, is dark. But darkness itself, can you compare that to God's existence? What's, this, what's the essence of evil? It's void, it's nothing. Since God is the only reality, it has no, re- it has no existence. It literally has no existence. Therefore, when the essence of the godly soul is revealed, what happens to the, to the, to the unholiness? Poof, it disintegrates completely. It's completely gone. You can't counter it with another essence. Oh, this is the essence of my animal soul. It doesn't work. Once, you, once we unplug our godly soul on the level of essence, and we bring that into ours, on into the surface, the the entire identity of our animalistic self goes poof, and it doesn't exist anymore. And that's what it means, the power of impurity I'm going to remove from the earth. Once Mashiach reveals the essence of truth in the world, Yechida is revealed, there is no more klipa. There is no more unholiness forever and ever. The sages alluded to this with a powerful, with a, it's so amazing how the Hasidic masters have discovered this very, very powerful teaching in a certain halacha principle in Torah. Amazing thing. You would never have guessed that in that Torah law lies this deepest secret. What's the, what's the Torah law? Amazing. You, got, you have to listen to this. This is mind-blowing. The law is as follows. A man, a woman can never be free, not bound to her husband in marriage unless he gives her a divorce. The Torah gave the ability to, to, to dissolve a marriage. How do you dissolve a marriage? A man gives his wife a divorce. However, there is a but obviously obviously 
the only one who can give the divorce, who is the only one that can give the divorce? The husband. That's the way God set it up. The man has to divorce his wife. It means a woman can't divorce her husband. The husband has to divorce the wife. Fine. Again, doesn't have to if he doesn't want to. But if, whatever reason, okay, fine. Now, a person doesn't have to give the divorce himself into her hand. If a man appoints a, if a man appoints an emissary, which means an agent, to do it in his behalf, then that person gets the power of attorney, so to speak, and he can, and he can do it on behalf of it. It's called a shliach. A shliach is you make someone an agent on your behalf. So the Talmud discusses an interesting thing. It's connected to this week's Torah portion. What happened to Joseph this week in the Torah portion? They threw him into a pit. Now imagine if someone is walking in the desert and he hears from under the ground a person crying. He gets close there and he sees there's a guy there. Someone threw him into the pit. And it's too deep. He can't get him. He doesn't have a rope. He can't get the guy out. The guy basically is going to die soon. He's there. Help. There's no one to call for help. He can't get him out of there. Feels really bad. So the guy says, listen, I know you can't help me. I'm, I'm going to die over here in this pit. But I don't want my wife to be, because the law is if a man dies, sometimes the woman, if a man dies, then what? His woman is free to marry anybody she wants. However, it's also connected to this week's Torah portion. If they died without children, then she's not allowed to marry a stranger. She has to marry the guy's brother. Because we want to make sure that that the man who died should have a, a, a continuation in this world. It's called uh, lev-something lev, lev marriage. where It's called yibun in Hebrew. Yibun, that's why uh, when, when this week's in the Torah portion, when, when, when the wife of Er passed, uh, Tamar, who married Er, and Er died without children, Yehuda asked his second son, um, Judah asked the second son, Onan, to marry her. A lot of times a person doesn't want his wife to be subject to that. Let's say he has a very evil brother or a guy who was just a whatever. She, he doesn't want her to be stuck. So at least he wants to help his wife out. If he gives her a divorce, then she was divorced before he died. So he tells this guy, he says to him, write, please go write a divorce, give it to my wife. Because I'm dying. I'm not going to get out of this pit. Please go and write a divorce for my wife. So the law is, hear this, the man is a, the man should listen and go ahead and write the divorce and give it, to, get to witnesses to sign in it, say he's an agent on behalf of this and this, gave the divorce, he's allowed to do so. That's the law. So the Gemara says, but hold it. How do you know that this person is really the person? He says, I am somebody. The Gemara says, okay, he can see him. He looks into the pit. What happens if he doesn't see him? It's very dark. He doesn't have a flashlight. Today we all have flashlights on our phone. He doesn't have a flashlight. It's pitch black down there. He hears the guy. So the Gemara says, it's talking that he recognizes his voice. He knows the guy. He spoke to him. I know what this person sounds like. If I don't know him, I can't trust it. Maybe it's a guy, maybe it's someone who wants to create a... a a, a, a uh, very big damage for the woman. Because imagine if you go and you bring a woman a divorce from somebody and she thinks she's divorced and she marries someone else. Meanwhile, she's a married woman. So she's done a terrible sin and her children will be illegitimate children. 
you create what we call a mamzer, which is a terrible situation. So how do we know that this guy is really the person? So what's the halacha? The law is, you heard, you heard, um, you recognize his voice. You can't see him, you recognize him. So the Gemara says, behold, maybe it's a demon. And it's a demon who is able to, demons are very, they have, they have less restrictions than humans. And they can, they can, um, they can, they, they're troublemakers. And it could be, what are they doing? That they are, they are um, um, replicating, well, I forgot what the right word would be. They're replic- imitating the guy's voice. So this is a total demon who wants to create a situation. And he's telling this woman, this guy to write a divorce, and really it's not that person. So the Talmud says, you saw that the person in the pit has a shadow. You saw a shadow. You don't see him exactly, but you see a shadow. So why, what is if you see a shadow? Demons don't have a shadow. The Talmud says they don't have a shadow. So the Talmud asks, demons don't have shadows? They do have a shadow. <laughs> I don't know this. I never met. I haven't, at least if I met a demon, I didn't know he was a demon. Thank God. There might be demons around, but I've never known that I was next to a demon. That would scare me very much. But in any case, but the Talmud says that, de- first the Talmud says demons don't have shadows. Talmud says, well, that's not true. Demons have shadows. So the Talmud says, no, he didn't see the shadow. He saw the shadow of the shadow. Sometimes you have a sh- one shadow. If you're standing next to the sun, you're blocking the sun, there's a shadow. But sometimes the shadow itself reflects a second shadow. So you didn't see one shadow, you saw the second shadow. And demons, if they have a shadow, they will only have one shadow. They will never have a double shadow. That's the statement of the Talmud. And in this case, you can only give the divorce to the wife if you didn't see the guy. Again, if you, if you didn't see a shadow, for sure you can't divorce. But even if you saw a shadow, you still can't trust. Maybe it's a demon who's, who's an imposter. But we're talking in the case where you saw a double shadow in the pit. So you know it can't be a demon because a demon wouldn't have a double shadow. Comes the Hasidic masters and they explain, what does this mean? The person himself, when we say there's a person, there's a shadow, and there's a shadow of a shadow. And we say a regular person has the body, has a shadow, and a shadow of a shadow. What does it spiritually mean? The part of the soul that goes into the body is called the person himself. The shadow that we're talking about is the super, the super encompassing energy, that the divine energy that doesn't go in the body. That's called a shadow because it's hovering over the person. It's a spiritual shadow. The level called Chaya. But then there is even a higher level, the shadow of the shadows. It's the Yechidah, it's the deepest part of the soul, yet it's the furthest away of our consciousness. It's the essence. Essence is beyond experience. It's so deep and so high. So our godly soul the side of holiness has these, these three levels. Has an in, 
internal energies encompassing encompassing level A and encompassing level B. But the animal soul, the dark side, the demon inside of us, it's our own demon. We have an animal soul. Our own nefesh is, even though it too has super rational drives. We said before, addictions and things like that, which are super rational drives, which are bigger than our minds. We're like, so they have a shadow, but they don't have a shadow of a shadow, which means the level of essence, even though it exists then by them also, but it's not real. It's, it's very, it's a very, it's a very weak level. The moment you reveal your godly essence, poof, it's destroyed in a second. That's what the sages mean. It doesn't have a shadow of a shadow, meaning the level of yechida does not exist in the other side. When we unplug that level of yechida, the battle, there's no more battle. Whatever we learned now, which was an hour and 40 minutes, was an introduction <laughs> to start learning five chapters. But we're going to understand now. We're going to be able to read it fast. And I don't think I'm going to finish all five chapters because I didn't think, I thought I'm going to speak for 20 minutes introduction and the rest we're going to learn. And I ended up giving all this lengthy explanation. The last part we learned, and now I'm going to give the, now I'm going to give the short introduction. <laughs> the last part we learned in the, in, the, in the class last week was about opening up our consciousness to the level of Shlomo HaMelech, to the level of Chai, to experience this super rational desire and, and how that floods our animal soul and silences our animal soul usually because we're so intense that it doesn't have a counter. What we learned last week that even though it floods it, it can still come back. That was the last thing we learned. Now we're going deeper. Let me, let me just say the point. The point is like this. Again, it's, I, I'm going to sharpen it just that it's going to make more sense when we're learning it. The point of it is like this. We all have a godly being. We have a godly life to live. God put our body in the neutral, in the neutral place. He gave us two souls. Soul A and soul B. The holy soul and the B, the, the behemoth soul. The animal soul, two souls. As the consciousness of these two souls filter in to make up our human consciousness, because our human consciousness is a blend of these two of these two forces. That's why we have good inclination and evil inclination. However, here's the question. Here's the situation. When we're operating with these two souls, we are operating in a, in a manner where the, the, the blend of consciousness is what my soul has to say. What's the philosophy of my soul? That's what I'm experiencing. I'm experiencing the philosophy of my soul. I'm not experiencing my soul. I'm experiencing the ideas of my soul. Now, obviously, my soul is my life force, but I'm not conscious of it as life source. I'm, I'm conscious of my soul as what? As a, as a voice of holy reasoning. That's the way we hear our godly, our godly messages come to us as holy reasoning. 
obviously, the more we tune into it, the more holy reasoning we're going to get. Our animal soul is also giving us unholy reasoning and unholy and unholy emotions. That's the degree of soul that we've brought into our experience. When we work hard, we can elevate ourselves that our input, our consciousness, experiences more than our holy reasoning. We can experience our purely divine drive, which means we can feel motivation and drive to goodness and to godliness from a place that's higher than reasoning, just pure, infinite energy. When we feel that, we're sure going to live a much godlier life. And our animal soul will interfere much less, but it can still interfere. The ultimate work is to go much deeper than drive. To allow the essence of our godly soul to, 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 to be revealed in our, in our being. Then, I'm not a neutral entity that has holy, holy reasoning. I'm not a neutral ent- entity that is that is experiencing this powerful godly wind blowing through me and pushing me towards godliness. I, my identity, who am I? I'm an expression of God in this world. That's my identity. Everything else is completely flushed out. It's more deeper than flushed out. Once that's revealed inside, everything gives. And that's, by the way, that's with all my heart. That's when I have holy reasoning. is when I have holy drive with all my soul. means with all, with all the you, with all your, all your you. What is your all? What's your full you? Your full you is your full essence. Your full essence expressed. So the second level which is called Bechol Nafshecha means Mesiras Nefesh. The second level means Mesiras Nefesh. What does Mesiras Nefesh mean? You're giving yourself over completely to God. Right? Mesiras Nefesh means you give yourself over to completely to God. But what are you giving over on the second level, not on the third level? You're giving yourself over because you're taking your entire power of drive, your drive and your will, you've given over to God. That means my entire drive is for you, God. I have no other desire but for you. I'm driven for you. I give myself over on the level of drive. But if I give myself over on the level of drive, you hear? If I'm giving myself over on the level of drive, I haven't given myself over entirely because there's something deeper than drive. There's who I am. So I'm on the level of drive, I'm driven for you. But since there is a deeper level, which is who I am, which I'm not identifying yet as my godly self, who I am, I might be my godly self, I might be my animal self. So it's possible if there's still a possibility that my identity is my animal self, then it's possible that tomorrow I'll experience a drive because what does, what does the essence produce? The essence produces pleasure and then drive. 
So if I haven't flipped over my animal soul from the level of essence, but I've only overpowered my animal soul, I've only vacuumed all... See, what happens is when you... When you unleash your... When your holy drive sweeps through your body, it vacuums up all the unholy drive. It swallows all the... It's like the seven cows of Pharaoh's dreams, the seven skinny cows swallowing the seven fat cows. In this case, it's the seven... It's the powerful emotion of drive of godliness that swallows up all unholy drive. So it's like like a little vacuum cleaner. It sucks up any bit of drive that we might still have to the material pleasures of the world and it becomes canceled in the godly drive. However, you still didn't draft your essence. You've taken your will. You've pulled your will out of unholiness into holiness. But the essence is still there. Therefore, what might happen when the essence of your God... When the drive of your godly soul, when the powerful storm of holiness will subside and you don't feel anymore that powerful drive, it'll calm down and you'll just have a moment of lull, of quiet. The essence of the unholy is still there and it can suddenly perk up and start feeling a a pleasure and a drive towards unholy things. It can make its comeback. But now he's going to introduce in, in, in chapter 8, there's something deeper than giving over your drive. You can give over your essence. And when you uncover your holy essence, the holy essence swallows and cancels the unholy essence. And the unholy essence completely dissolves into the holy essence. And then there is never darkness anymore in a person. There's never concealment anymore in a human being. That's where we're going to begin learning right now, chapter 8. Since it's Hanukkah. Now, by the way, this is, I forgot, I was thinking the whole time to connect it to Hanukkah. This is Hanukkah. This is what it means to discover the one oil, the jug of oil. When you discover this pure oil, that means the pure essence, you have enough to live your entire life off this essence. The Greeks don't stand a chance. They can't contaminate this oil. You're, you're already scot-free. So we're learning chapter 8 tonight because 8 is Hanukkah. 8 days of Hanukkah. Here we go. In Yesh Oid, Bechinas Mesiris Nefesh, there is another level of Mesiris Nefesh, Shalamai Lahar Bim Mesiris Nefesh Anal, which is much higher than the, than the previous um, self-sacrifice. Over here, the intention is not inyan mesiris haratzon levat. You're not giving over just your desire. Shezehu mesiris haratzon lirishus ratzon agoiverolov, where you're surrendering one 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 set of desires for a more powerful desire that is going to cancel it. We discussed in earlier classes. This I didn't mention today, that we can a lot of times find within ourselves. For example, we discussed last week, if a person likes money, right? They like, they like, um, they like their money and they work very hard to make more money. But suddenly, God forbid, their child, and they usually are very stingy and don't like to spend their money. But if God forbid their child was abducted and they need to, and they need to get them back from, uh, 
They'll, they'll spend everything. Suddenly money becomes meaningless. What does that mean? Their desire for their child cancels their desire for money. So this is what we're talking about earlier. When you unleash the full desire of your godly soul and you don't limit it by your mind, you allow the desire to come flooding your consciousness with the powerful desire. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cancel out all unholy desire. But, as he says, in other words, you're giving over your will to the Ratzon that is prevailing over it. But here we're going deeper than that. By the intention over here, in, are you going to use the book? Or you're, you're not planning on using it? Is it better for you to use the book or not? No, I'm asking you if, you're, if it's better for you to use it. Okay, then give it to me rather because that print is a clearer print. I gave it to you because I think it'll be easier for you, but if you're not using it, then... <laughs> it's a much... It's an easier for me to read. Um, but the intention is... You're not giving over your desire. You're giving over your fundamental soul. You're giving over I. My entire self is my divine identity. You're not just giving over your desire. And even though we explain elsewhere, that desire is called soul itself. So if you give over your desire, it's as if you gave over your soul. It's as if you gave over the soul. Because pure, unadulterated desire is a pure expression of the soul. But it's just an expression. In other words, the mind is not the soul. The mind is already a filtered energy of the soul. It's the soul coming through a filter. Desire could be an expression of pure soul energy. So if you're giving over your desire, it's considered as if you gave over your soul. If you say to God, I have no other desire but you, that means you're giving over your soul to God. But not all the way. Because desire is only an expression of the soul. He's giving an example of where we see that desire is called is called the soul. It says, I think in Parshas Bereshis, where Avram asks Ephraim, is it within your soul to let me bury my dead in my bury Sarai, Sarah in in your in your uh, Sarah in your uh... so what is he asking? Is it is it in your soul? Is it in your desire? Can you make room in your desire that I should bury Sarah in Hebron in your burial place? Or there's a passage that says, My soul is not with the people. What does it mean? My desire, I don't have a desire to be with them. So you see that soul is very much associated with desire. That's true. But you can't compare it at all. If you're comparing it to the very substance of the soul itself, from it comes every desire, vichuka and every longing. In other words, there is somewhere from where desire comes from. That's the, that's the very DNA, the substance of the soul. Can you do as it is? And that's silent. That, that's not expressed. It just is. And therefore, once one unplugs themselves and reveals within their body such a deep level of of 
of, 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 of uh, their divine soul. There's no more war. V'nitzuach. And there's no more victory shall base Ritzainais from two conflicting wills. Because the whole war is only when there's two conflicting wills. Right? There's this will and that will. You're going much deeper than will. There's nowhere from where an unholy will can come from. Because you've claimed your identity already. As long as you're dealing with will and desire. So one will can overpower the other one. But then the other one can come back again. Until it converts it. Fine. But here it's much deeper. We're dealing with a much deeper level. We're dealing with the soul itself. That's the source of the will. A chuka and longing. Can you do as it is? No. In came moving, it's understood. That when we're talking about comparing it to the essence of the soul itself, all wills are all the equal. You know, the soul itself, a big will and a small will, if is 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 all is all um because the soul is above even desire, any kind of a desire. From the, it's, it's, it's almost like to the soul itself, the desires are considered all external. As the soul's um, reveals itself into our consciousness, yeah, desire is very much, pleasure is very much, but the soul is higher than all of that. And therefore to the soul itself, there's no difference between a big desire and a small desire. On this level of soul, the soul is not made up of many desires. God forbid. The soul is simple. It's above it all. So you can't say that since a, 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 a big desire, you might say like this, that in the soul itself, the desire for life is a big part of the soul. And the desire for money is a smaller part of the soul. The soul is beyond any desire. It's just that. And you can say that you can say that these two desires are in conflict. One will overpower the other. That's all if we're dealing, if we're still living on the outside of our being. You're not living inside your soul. You're living outside. Our soul is informing our consciousness, but our soul is still outside of our consciousness. Our soul, our essence of our soul is still above our consciousness. Since the, 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 the will is not part of the soul at all, because the essence of the soul is completely removed from and above any kind of desire. It's understood its quality and its level. If a person can bring themselves to open themselves up to such a deep level where their soul itself is felt in their body and from that level they're experiencing their connection to God from their essence of their soul. This is much deeper than giving over your desire. The Indian who, 
What does this mean? This is, what this means is, what does it mean that your essence is revealed? It means that you experience an essential, not a desire to be connected to God, but you experience an essential oneness with God. And what does that mean? That a person in his entire essence is nullified to God. Because being one with God means to be completely nullified to Him. So the person complete experience is a complete nullification. And if you're nullified to God, you absolutely cannot have any more personal will. You experience will and you experience pleasure. But it's not your will and it's not your pleasure. It's God's will and it's God's pleasure. But that's you because you are one with Him. Yes. Then we'll be one with Him. Free will is only till we bring ourselves to this place. Then we will celebrate how awesome it is to be one with Him. We're going to experience deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and higher revelation of God's existence through us. But uh, by us being it. And he's opening himself up into our channels stronger and stronger and higher and higher and higher and higher. Calling us to much higher accomplishments and revelations. That means we will still be shining light into this world. We will still have our same physical bodies. But the amount of light that will come through us, the amount of spiritual energy that will come through us will be endless. And there won't be, however, any more a conflict between being good and evil. That free will will end. Once you reach this point, there's no more free will. Because once you reach your point, you're no more, free will can only be when you're living between, in the border between your godly and your animal. And, you have, and you're still indecisive. That's when there's free will. Because you're still indecisive if you're going to allow yourself to live the superficial, external, empty, hollow animal self. Or you're going to live the deeper, truer, higher godly self. But once the, the full godliness of, your, of yourself has fully manifested to the point that your identity now of your life, your very definition of life is your godly soul and your godly identity. And it's over. It's over in terms of a test between good and evil. And that's why we can't accomplish much after Mashiach comes in terms of earning more, but we could experience more. We will enter the world of experience then. Now we're in the world of decision-making. We're not experiencing. This is not a world of experience. That's why it's not the real world of reward. It's the world of, of, of making choices. Of an, who are we aligning with? Which side of ourselves? How are we defining ourselves? That's our, our constant battle. But it's interesting. Just like it is, we, we spoke about these three levels in, the human, in each and our individual level. Same is also the global consciousness, which is really interesting. Because... What we're saying is that to what, just like our own bodies are vehicles for our soul 
And the question is, which level of soul did we, un, did we reveal in our body? Only when Mashiach will come, where our, will our entire soul be fully manifest in our body. Our yechida will be open in our bodies. And then we will be living, our physical bodies will be just a vessel for our godly identity without, without, without any tug of war anymore. Right? So think about it this way. The world as a whole is the body for God. God is the singular soul for the entire world. And when I say the entire world, I mean all the worlds, including the physical world, with all the billions of creatures inside of it. However, however, here's this. Satan got involved on the first day of creation, and he claims to be that this world is his body, which means he wants to live his life through humanity. How does Satan live his life through humanity? How does the Sitra Akhra, the other side, when we function as facilitators of his agenda? God has, his, has an agenda, and the Satan has an agenda. And from when God created the world, God and the other side, which call him Satan, call him whatever you want, are in conflict of whose body this world is. And mankind is constantly fluctuating between the two. And the collective, but here's the thing. What's God's input into the world? This is this, 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 what's getting me so excited. I want to jump out of my chair. You see, till now, until Mashiach comes, the world as a whole, the cosmos, what kind of input are they receiving from God? Godly intelligence. God is feeding the world with divine intelligence. Call it Torah, call it whatever. It's all intelligence. The other side is giving its intelligence. And there's a, it's a battle of ideas. It's a battle of concepts. Who do you believe more? Do you believe the holy intelligence? Do you believe the unholy intelligence? Conflict between Torah and science can't be a real conflict because if science is honest, it eventually reaches a point where it realizes the truth of Torah. But because there are egos involved, and there's a lot of desire not to discover God. So a lot of times science seeks to come to conclusions that are not so honest. So that we can keep the world not in, in a non-believing state. So, you have this conflict. And then, maybe even, there are certain times when there are higher powers of God that fill the cosmos, that fill the world. And that means there's like certain revelations of holiness that are brought to the world that are bigger than intelligence. They're just forces, like powerful trends that that flood through the world and lift the world up to its higher spirituality. Uh, it would be interesting how to explain Chaya in terms of global consciousness. I can't, I don't know exactly what the explanation is. We're a holy drive that drives humanity in a good way, which has happened in the past, and it's here in the world. But there is also unholy drives that are conflict. So there's holy intelligence, unholy. 
when Mashiach will come. The world becomes a home for God. What does that mean? Not Hashem's lights manifest and fill the world. Not his emanations. But God's essence reveals itself here. God moves into the world like a person moving into a house. And says, this is my home. And that means everything in the world becomes like just a, a body for God. Everything. We're speaking about our own spark being revealed inside of us and that we are all individually divine channels. But on a collective scale, the entire existence is now open to God's very essence. So what is the world? An external body for God Almighty himself. And he expresses himself in, into this body and reveals himself in, in that reality. It won't be possible for anything to operate in any other way but for the divine will. Because it becomes clear this is his home. This is where he is. Just like a person in his own home doesn't have conflicting wills. You know, if you're, God forbid, if you're, if, if you're, God forbid, living on the street and you're living in a tent city, then I believe you can have many fights about, you know, with, your, with, the, with, the, with the neighbors out there of how it should be. You know, you want to play the music, the other neighbors, the, 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 you know, I'm talking about in a homeless camp. Shut the music, it's 10 o'clock, it's quiet time, it's time to sleep. Person wants to use the bathroom over there, right over there in front of the other guy's tent. He gets really angry. What are you doing? You understand that this comes because it's not, but in your own house, in your own house, it's everything in your home is accordance to, to how you want it because it's your house. Unless you're married and it's according to how your wife wants it. But that's also because she's you. She's the better you of you. But that's the point. It's your home. Once God moves into here, what does that mean? It becomes crystal clear. His identity, his very, it's not just divine illuminations and radiance that fill the universe. It's God himself. And it's his home. It's not influencing it from the outside, like sending lights into the world. That's, that's the Chiddush we're learning over here. That's the novelty of Mashiach's times. Um, I'm going to read now very quickly because I'm not, we can go on explaining and explaining will never get done. So now we'll understand how great and how unbelievable, how, how awesome and how the greatness of this type of um, this is the essential bittle. It's when the entire person becomes converted to something godly. It's not like the unholy became overpowered by some other power. It's fundamentally changed. The entire essence and substance of the of what was once unholy became completely nullified 
into a state of absolute bittel. Bittel meaning absolute identification with God. Where over here there can't be any more a war and there can't be any more even a victory. Because a victory is if there's a fight, if there's two forces. And this is the type of love. Remember we said before, it's in Shema, it's the third level. Which is the absolute Mesiris Nefesh. It's the complete self-sacrifice. Which comes after, we said, all, with all your soul. To understand this, this was a synopsis. To understand this to its utmost. He's going to bring an example of where we see. Once this happens, he's going to give an illustration of where a person has nullified, intensified their holy desire. And as a result of that, he's, he's going to bring an example of two righteous people. Both of them are living perfectly godly lives. Internally and externally. Both of them are only doing what God wants. They're living the life of their godly soul. But there's going to be a major difference. Because one of them is living b'chol nafshecha and the other one is living b'chol ma'odecha. One of them is living on a level where they gave, where, where their holy desire canceled all their unholy desire. And the other one is living on a level where their essence of their godly self was revealed and as a result of that, it canceled the essence of their animals. And I'm going to give you just shortly, briefly, where he's going to say the difference is. The difference is like this. If a person has overpowered their desire for God over every other desire, their spiritual quest for serving God and doing mitzvahs and doing holy things has completely consumed them. And canceled all other physical material desires. Yet. Yet. If for whatever reason. They were supposed to have breakfast. And they sat down and you know were ready to have their meal. And they have their whole desire is just to pray and to do mitzvahs. And someone took away their food. And now they're left without breakfast. Although they won't make a massive fuss about it. Because... If someone grabbed their Siddur book or doesn't let them pray, they would be very, very upset. But if someone took their breakfast, breakfast is not so important. They don't have such a desire for breakfast. However, silently, there's a little pain. It bothers them. Because I was planning to eat now. I was ready to eat. Even though it's not a major desire by me. What does that mean? There's still a little pleasure left in the food. And when you stole my French toast, it still bothers me. <laughs> so even though I don't feel it as a massive desire, I can do without it. It's not going to destroy my day, but it causes me a little bit of pain. He's going to explain <laughs> something very interesting. How do you know if there's no desire at all left? Is to see if you take away that thing, if you feel pain. Sometimes you can be doing things and not feel that they give you any pleasure or any delight. But that's not a proof that you don't really have any pleasure in that. Because pleasure can be very subtle. 
So a person can think, I only have pleasure in a mitzvah. I only have pleasure in, in prayer, in study Torah. I couldn't care less about food. I couldn't care less about any other. I'm supposed to, I need to live, so I have to eat, but I don't have any pleasure in it. That's not where my pleasure is. I've extracted all the pleasure. You can't always tell from the realm of pleasure. What you could tell is if it hurts when it was taken away. Because pain and pleasure, he's going to explain now that pain and pleasure are the two opposite sides of the same coin. If you have pleasure in something, you have pain when you don't have it. If you don't have pleasure in something, you don't have any pain in it. So as long as a person has only converted their unholy pleasures with holy desire, with holy pleasure and holy desire, and you didn't change it on the level of essence, that means that sub, sub, subconsciously there's still pleasure in it. You might not even realize it, but how will you realize it? If, if a person has a physical loss, it still bothers you. If something happened in your life that kind of made things physically harder, it will hurt you. The ultimate tzaddik, whose entire identity is godly living, feels no more pain than anything in this world taken away from him. It's such a high level. It's called the level of shivisi. There's a verse that says, shivisi Hashem lenegdi samen. I place God before me, before me always. The Baal Shem Tov teaches that shivisi doesn't just mean I'm thinking about God all the time. Shivisi means equa, equanimity. What does equanimity mean? That the person experiences a complete equanimity in their life. Whatever happens to them is equal. I have lunch. It's good. I don't have. It's good. I'm satiated. It's good. I'm hungry. It's good. I got sleep. It's good. I didn't get sleep. Just as good. I had a peaceful, you know, I had, I had, uh, I, had I was, temperature was comfortable. It's good. It was too hot. Exactly same good. It's freezing cold. Still just as good. Why? How can that be? How can that be? You're uncomfortable. A person becomes so identified with holiness and godliness that literally the only thing that matters is your relationship with God. That becomes your entire existence. The physical experiences of the physical body become absolutely meaningless because that's not your identity. Your physical body is a physical encasement for your spiritual life. It doesn't occupy any room in one's entire decision-making if I'm happy or not happy, if I'm upset or not upset. Because it's meaningless. Literally meaningless. And that will be the difference between these two tzaddikim, the two, these two levels. If I overpowered my unholy desire with holy desire, it will still bother. I, I, I'm, I don't have a passion, a drive, and I'm not going to occupy time doing it. 
But when I'm happy, when I have it, I'm happy. When I don't have it, I'm upset. But on a much deeper level, it doesn't bother me at all. He's later in the mimer, all the way. I mean, it's quite a bit later. Going to say he's going to show it how it's possible in relationships that way. Sometimes a person becomes so obsessed with another human being to take care of them and to care about them and to love them and that they'll even harm themselves to help their friend. They don't mind. If I can make you comfortable, even if I have to stand outside in the heat the whole day, but I know I gave you my bed and I had you, you had a comfortable meal and you were this, that, 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 I'm so happy. I'm happy that I was able to take care of you. Person can even go ahead and exchange someone else. You care about someone so much. You know, sometimes, you know, bad guys came in and they said they want to take a kid away. Imagine, oh, actually, I saw a video when the hostages in Israel, one of the October 7 videos, there was a family in which they have video when the hostages are in there. And the guys, the, the woman is talking to her brother on the phone. The hostages are there. Not the hostages, the the, the, the terrorists are in the house in one of the, in one of the kibbutzim and they want to take the boy. It's, it's that boy where they told him to go to the neighbors and knock on the door. They were so vicious because they, they wanted the Israeli boy to call the neighbors out. So they come out, they'll shoot them because the people were hiding. So they sent this boy out. The family is arguing with the terrorist. The father tells the, the terrorist, take me instead of him. You can understand. A parent will want to exchange because you care so much about your child. You love them more than you love yourself. So take me instead of my child. But there's two levels he's going to explain. One level, one level is when your love to the other person is very, very deep. So much so that you're willing to take the bullet for them. But when you're taking the bullet, you will still feel the pain of the bullet. In other words, if you're being taken prisoner and you're sitting in the dungeon, deep inside your heart, you're so happy that the other person, you, 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 by, by going through this pain, you're actually helping the other individual, but in the literal sense, you're feeling pain. Why? Because you still have an existence outside of your friend. And that existence is feeling pain. But there is a le- wait, it's so hard to imagine this. There's a level of bonding when you bond so deeply with another individual that you have completely relinquished your identity. They are your identity, not you. It's almost like you've allowed yourself to become, to become integrated into them that they are you more than you are you. And therefore, if you're experiencing pain, and torture, you don't even feel it. It's not even bothering you. It doesn't hurt you in any way. Because the thrill of the freedom and the light that the other person is getting now and not in that state fills your entire consciousness and it leaves no space for anything else. That's a connection of essence. He says King David and, 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 and Yonatan had that relationship. Avas Yonason and David, like this. They became one. Imagine such a level of Avat Yisrael.
This is the way we're going to love each other when Mashiach comes. That you can experience giving something to someone, exchanging it for not, and yet not even feeling anything because you're just in ecstasy because the other person is in a good space. The same as it is with others, it's with God as well, obviously. In the end of the discourse, he's going to explain how the 10 martyrs, and I mentioned this last week, the 10 martyrs, Rabbi Akiva, who died al Kiddush Hashem, felt no pain when they were being tortured to death because they were in such ecstasy that they're doing the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. They so identified only with their godly essence that their physical identity was only an instrument for a mitzvah. And now their physical body was allowing them to do a mitzvah. What was the mitzvah of the physical body? For the physical body to be tortured to death, that was the mitzvah. They only felt the mitzvah of it. They didn't feel anything else. There was nothing to their physical body outside of the mitzvah. This is so wild. Imagine us becoming so godly to reach that point that there's nothing other than us than just being a vehicle for God. This is the level of yechida that he's explaining. This is Mashiach. The Rebbe bases so much of explanation of what Mashiach consciousness on this discourse of the Mittler Rebbe over here, explaining the ultimate depth of Yechida, of, of digging out. And the, the beauty is we all have this in essence, but it's hovering above us. It's not, it hasn't manifested into consciousness. Mashiach is when we open up, when all the external layers are peeled away and this essence moves into, into our, into our, into our vision, into our, uh, okay, let's read, uh, like, so in the, to understand all of this, to its fullest, we first have the prophets. For who for preface for who hishtavos. We will understand it by first explaining what means hishtavos. What's hishtavos? Hishtavos means, as we said, ikwan ikwan. What was the word I used? Equanimity. Equanimity. What does that mean? the Indian who? And the idea is like this: liyosha anu royim. We see. The main source that includes all, all experiences in this world are two things. Oneg the Tsar. Pleasure and pain. Meaning, what's the underlying factor that drives everything we do? We're drawn towards that which will give us pleasure. And we avoid that which will what? Give us pain. Right? So immediately when we come somewhere, we try to seek out, you're buying a ticket for the plane. That's the first thing you do. Check the seats. <laughs> you look for which seat is going to give you the most pleasure. And if you book the, the ticket like a few days before the flight, and every seat is empty and you got the back seat where there's no foot space right next to the bathroom where the seat does not recline, you're filled with pain. But what are you going to do? You have to fight the flight. <laughs> so you, you see, like, like, like the, you know, having a nice seat with extra leg room, or if you're a Gansamacher, you can go to business class or first class. Oh, that's a pleasure. The opposite is to sit scrunched in the back and, and get, get off last 
and be, be, be the last one to board. And as a result of that, they take away your baggage too. And you still have to wait. <laughs> so we all understand. like the, and, and what does everybody try to do? Everybody tries to improve their chances for pleasure and minimize their pleasure, their, their, their chances for pain. These are the underlying factors. But he's going to explain that they really, they're really just a flip side. In other words, whatever it is that gives you pleasure, if you have pleasure sitting very comfortably and being able to spread yourself and, 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 and so then you have a lot of pain, the more opposite that is, right? What if the desire is to bring Mashiach? So then, yeah, then you have pain. Then you have pain from the fact that Mashiach is not him. This has, not, this has nothing to do with holy or unholy. This is a fact. Pleasure is the positive experience. Pain is the same, exp- is, the, is the flip of pleasure. Where what you what is giving pleasuring what what gives you pleasure is lacking, the void of pleasure creates the pain. This includes everything that the soul is drawn after. Can you do as it is known? The main draw of the soul into anything. Is because of the pleasure, sheyesh ba'oisedaver. If you're studying, you have pleasure in it. If, if you're if you're uh, working out, you have pleasure in looking good. If you're um, or being healthy, that can give you pleasure. All right, or anything you go to work, you want to make money. You have pleasure either in making money or in the comforts that that money brings you. Well, everything we do is following pleasure. Once you have pleasure, that stimulates desire. And the want, or the want and the desire. That a person desires and wants this. If he wouldn't have pleasure in it, you wouldn't desire it at all. as it is known. For this reason we see when something is done against the person's will, it causes a pain. If you wanted something and someone comes in and does against your will, it causes pain. It causes you to get angry, it causes pain. Why? Because the reason you have a want is because you have a pleasure in it. So the want is only the expression of the pleasure. So when someone negates that will, what does that mean? That you're negating the pleasure. When you negate the pleasure, it causes pain. And that's painful to the soul. And that can be anything. Some people have very good desires. When people block their desires from happening, it causes them pain from not having what's good. For example, if you're a parent, you want to send your kid to the best school. You love your child. You want to send. That means you have a pleasure in your child. You have a very deep pleasure in in your child being successful. Your child gives you pleasure and you want the best for them. So you tried very hard to get him in the school. 
let's say you were finally, your child was accepted. And then a new administrator comes. And a week before school tells you that we're sorry your child is not coming into school. And you can go find another school. They went against your desire. You're so much, it causes enormous pain. You'll get angry. You'll fight the person. Then you'll be frustrated at night. You can't, it's, it's, it hurts. Why does it hurt? Because you have pleasure in your child. And now you're, you're negating my, my success. Of, I, my, I see my child being successful through being in this, in this school or something like that. And that's in anything. I'm just giving an example. First, he's going to ask a question. Why should a person get so much pain? And when it pains, what it really means, it's as if someone is pinching your soul. It's as if someone is clamping your soul. Because when a person is happy, their soul is very expansive. When a person experiences like a, a block, when someone is in your way and stopping your will, it's as if they're diminishing your energy of your soul. It's almost like they're shrinking your soul. It's like be, a minute before when you thought you're, you're, you're getting the job, when you thought you're getting the role, when you thought you're getting, there was so much expansivity. Suddenly you feel so, so constricted. It's like literally he's, he's giving the internal experience. He's looking very deeply. It's as if someone suddenly took your entire being and shrunk you to be much smaller. To diminish the person. It's called ruach nitke. It's called a broken spirit. It's called ruach nitke, a crushed spirit. Or a broken spirit. He asked the question. The soul is spiritual. How can you speak about a spiritual being being broken? And you realize that. Sometimes we go through certain, certain, um, sometimes we experience certain letdowns in life that break us completely. Much break us completely. How can it break a person? It's obviously not breaking you physically, it's breaking you spiritually. How can a soul be broken? And what causes it? Because it was done against your will. But and we asked earlier, the will we explained earlier, didn't we explain earlier that will is not your soul? It's outside. It's not the substance of the soul. It's only a ray of the soul. So how is it that defying the will causes the soul itself to be crushed? We have to say. Pleasure is deeper than desire, than will. Pleasure is kind of rooted in the essence of a person's soul. The soul is not pleasure. But the first experience of soul, the first emergence of soul is pleasure. Based on that pleasure, we spoke earlier, a very subtle, deep undertone of pleasure comes the desire. And, the, and so the, the soul itself fuels the pleasure. 
and the pleasure is consistent with the type of soul that it is. And the pleasure drives the desire. So when you're negating the desire, you're really negating the pleasure. And when you're negating the pleasure, you're poking the soul. So, therefore the pain. That's opposite the pleasure and the desire. Causes a diminishment of the light. As it is known. The nega oisius oineg. That the word nega, which means infliction, which means can apply to every pain, is the same letters as oneg as pleasure, indicating that pleasure and pain are two opposites. And we see Now we see that there's many, many levels. Because when we speak about a person has pleasure, the question is not all pleasures are equal. There are certain things that we have a lot of pleasure in. And if God forbid someone messes with that, it will completely shatter us. And there are certain things that we have pleasure in, but they're less pleasure. And therefore the pain, if you bother with it, is not so intense. And every person is different based on who they are. So if a person, a certain person, if you stole their lunch, or more than that, if you finished the ketchup, you know, they were lining up to, to pour a little ketchup on their hot dog. And it was the last bottle of ketchup in the restaurant. And the person before slobbered their thing and now they came to take the ketchup and there's nothing left. Forget about it. They'll be sick and won't be able to move for an entire month because you stole their ketchup. <laughs> there's a whole lot of pleasure in that. In that Indian. If you take that away from them, you've completely diminished their entire existence. Possible. And there's a person, if even if you took away their entire meal, okay, because eating is not such a major thing. I won't eat. Fine. Doesn't completely discombobulate it. Oh, that means that your pleasure is the deeper you're connected to Torah and to holiness and to certain and you believe that this rabbi of this teaching is the true teaching. That means you have a deep pleasure in it, a deep conviction that it's truth and a deep connection. So someone who comes encounters it, one of the hardest, the deepest pains is if a person is a believer and you hear an atheist or an apostate or someone like that dismiss or make fun or... That's why, what does King David say? Those who fight God, I hate them with a hatred that I can't even tell you. Because his love for God is so intense. So he hates anything that is opposing. That diminishes that. Because of the level of pleasure that he had in holiness. So he says, but we see, How much is the light of the person is extinguished, is diminished? How 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 much does a person how, how much of you shrinks when you don't have what you want and you get from the pain sometimes someone defied your will and it bothered you you were at work or you were in a family event and you you wanted 
you know, the event to go like this and like this, and the people decided not to listen to you. They didn't play the music you wanted. They didn't do the thing. And you're offended, and it hurts you, and it bothers you. But, you're bothered a little bit by it. So what do you do? You go have yourself a little latte. You go pour yourself a little drink. You make yourself something nice. Right? You go eat a peanut chew. <laughs> you give yourself a little something, and that little new pleasure that you get makes you forget. You put on your headphones. You put on your favorite music for yourself. And you get over it. Doesn't that happen many times? We were slighted. We were, our will was not, it didn't go our way. It caused us pain. But we did something to remove the, the pain. And the pain is over. Sometimes all, it, all you need to do is to speak about it to someone else. Right? Sometimes you're hurt by something. But you feel much better after you conveyed it. Someone wasn't nice to you. Someone stole your parking lot, your parking space. Whatever it is, they're upset. So what do you do? You talk to a good friend. You let it off your chest. It's gone. Because through speech, you let it go. You speak it out, and it went out. Or he gives another example. Or you can just listen to some music. Or you can listen to comedy. Great. He's giving you an excellent example. Turn on your favorite comedian. Laugh. And you'll laugh the pain away. Or go on a hike. Go to the garden. Go, to the, go, go on a hike. Take a nice walk through the forest. Or some other pleasure. Or the like. That's if what, 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 what was done against you was not so deep. But the yesh tzar v'yesudim, sometimes there's pain. It's like something that you want because you have a very deep pleasure in it. And it's very important to you. And when someone opposes it and it went against, what does it do? It drills a major hole in your soul. And you try. You go ahead and you play the music and your mind can't even listen to the music. You speak about it to people and it doesn't go out. You're just as angry afterwards and you're just as hurt and you're just as broken. You try every type of thing because you're not happy that you're so upset. But you can't get the upsetness out of you. That's because, obviously, the will that, that, was, that was challenged or the will that was defied is a deeper-rooted will. It's a will that's rooted deeper in your soul and therefore the non-compliance with that will, because the pleasure is deeper, the non-compliance with it or the defiance of it hurt you much deeper. And the reason is because the root of the pain and the suffering is the opposite of the pleasure and the desire. Consequently, the desire. That's why the amount of pain that you feel is dependent 
in accordance to how much or how little the pleasure is. And consequently, how much desire you have, which is dependent on the pleasure. If a person has a lot of pleasure and a lot of desire, it's a type of pleasure that reaches you so deeply. It's like your favorite singer. That you, your entire life, you're crazy about this singer. This singer gives you the most, performer, gives you the most craziest sensations. And they're coming to town. And you bought tickets six months in advance. And then in the end, you got sick and you couldn't go. You got COVID. <laughs> They're not letting anybody in who has COVID. <laughs> You're so angry. You're so in pain. Because the pleasure that you have is so much. And you finally had the opportunity to be at that performance live. And now it's not there. It, 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 it literally, it's, it's like a, a dagger being stuck into your, into your heart of hearts. If something is done that contradicts that pleasure and that will, the pain will be very much. It will diminish the person's soul a lot. Because equal to the amount of pleasure will be the pain. When that light and that light of pleasure, the mid of Ishir, the Yosef Atzar ala the the pain will not be more than the pleasure, Velo Yamat Mimena, it won't be less than it. Elahima Kashir Umida Echad. They're both exactly because they're two sides of the coin. So if it's a smaller coin, if it's a penny, that means the pleasure is or a dime, the size of a dime. If the pleasure of your soul in something is the size of a dime, then the pain you'll feel for not having it is the size of a dime. If the pleasure that you have in it is the size of a quarter, then the pain that you have of it is the size of a quarter. If the pleasure it is the sign of a half dollar, so bigger, see what I'm saying? Depending, because they're both two sides of the coin. Since it's the flip side of the pleasure. If a person loses a lot of money, the pain will be as much. How much pleasure did you have behind Rav Zeh with this, all this money? And if there's just a little damage, less pain. So he gives it a money. For example, people who have a lot of pleasure when they are honored. People who love being the center of attention. They love being recognized. They just love it. They love it when their name is announced. That's their pleasure. A person has a delight in recognition. So if someone offends them publicly, it's like that. Or when they were expecting to be honored and they, and, and so, and they forgot to mention their name. They come home and they're huffing and they're puffing. And for weeks they're angry. And they're insulted and they can't get over it because 
they were slighted, their honor was slighted. So depending on how much they appreciate the honor, that's how much they are in pain from the fall of the honor. So will be the pain if they lose that. Same is also in physical intimacy. How much the person has pleasure in physical intimacy. So much pain they'll have when they don't have that. Or someone, whatever, took that away from them. So they get even they get very upset about it. Talmud says that this person saw a girl, he fell in love with her, he had this incredible desire for her, and the sage and the, and the sages and to the point that he and he became sick, he was going to die out of his need to be with her, and the sages said that the and the, and the question was at least let him talk to her. It looks like it was a very, a very strong mishmeret tatsniot. Then they were very, they were very mesharim over here. They didn't. Uh, and this guy, he was, a, he was, he was a Yerushalmi with a with a flat hat, and he uh, took to this girl. He saw her by the Rebbe's tish. Somehow he wasn't supposed to see the lady section. He saw her. He fell in love with her. He became crazy. He needed to see her, and uh, the Toldus Aaron said, "Go away." They said, "Let her." The guy's going to die. Let him at least speak to her from the other side of the fence. That's what they said. And the sages said, better he should die than he should, because it, was, it wasn't like he was going to marry her. That wasn't going to happen. So it was just to fulfill his fantasy. And because of that, it was not permitted. But what do you see from me? He's just giving me an example that a person can sometimes die from a desire. That's how much it's, which he can't have. Okay, hi, Gavna. The, the Zohar says, the Zohar says that the worst thing you can do is to get in between a lion when he wants to mate with the, fe- with the female lion. Because when the lion is, is, it gets excited, gets into heat, if you call it, they call it. If anybody, the Zohar says, woe to the one who will step in the middle. It's not good always to be in, in front of a lion, but sometimes the lion doesn't care. But if you get in his way when he has sexual desire and you stop him then, forget about it. You're done. Uh, when the lion and the lioness stand. And then there is pleasure and desires that are less. To the point when you do against the will, it's not even called pain. Only very little pain. How much depending on how little the pleasure is. However, even though the will and the pleasure is not the essence of the soul, it's only a ray of the soul. The pain causes a diminishment in the essence of the soul. Because since the pleasure reaches into the essence of the soul, so through the pain with the lacking of the pleasure, scrapes the essence of the soul, till it can be considered a person has a broken spirit. Ach, 
However, however, we find a situation that a person can elevate themselves spiritually so much that they lose all pleasure in anything material of the physical. It doesn't mean there's no pleasure in their soul. Immense pleasure. But it's only in godly things. People who have extracted themselves so much, they've lifted themselves up so much from the physical world that there is nothing in the physical world that matters to them. That it should either make them happy or sad if they have it or don't have it. That's called, he's going to explain it, his pashtut hagashmiyot, which means they have divested themselves completely from material material things. The famous story of the Alter Rebbe. The Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya, not what we usually, we learn every week, not the Mitla Rebbe, this is his son. When he was, he once had a guest, the great and saintly Reb Shloima of Karlin, who came, was a colleague of his, big, big, big holy tzaddik. Reb Shloima came to the Alter Rebbe for Shabbos because it was such an important guest. And he was known to be a very big tzaddik. The people in the home of the Alter Rebbe were very excited to prepare food. You want to prepare food for the tzaddik. They were going to spend Shabbos together and they were going to have the Shabbos dishes. So everybody was participating. Usually there was one cook in the kitchen, but all the daughters of the Alter Rebbe and the daughter-in-laws, everybody got excited because this Shabbos we have an extra guest. So everybody got involved. Too many cooks spoil the soup. That's exactly what happened. Everybody put salt into the, into the soup. They didn't realize. They were all excited. This one put the salt. This one put the salt. The time it was done, it was so salty, it was literally not edible. When it came Friday night and the two tzaddikim sat down, they washed, they made kiddush, they had all fish, they brought them the soup. It was chicken soup problem. Tradition to eat chicken soup Friday night. Reb Shloma sticks his spoon in. The Alter Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe eats and he's waiting for his guest. Put it, puts it to his mouth and puts it back down. It literally couldn't, it was as salty as the Yama Melech, as the, as the, as the salt city sea. And it, it was literally unedible. Couldn't. And the Alter Rebbe is eating and the Alter Rebbe turns to him and says, Shabbos, the weekday, you're supposed to avoid pleasure but Shabbos, you're supposed to have pleasure. So the Alter Rebbe turns to Reb Shleim and he says, no. He says, and he said it. First he tried to get it. And he said it. I'm so, I don't know if you noticed, but it's extremely salty. The Alter Rebbe said, salty? Didn't feel. He said, what do you mean you couldn't feel? The Alter Rebbe said that since I was by the Magid, since I was by my teacher, the Holy Magid, I lost every bit of pleasure in food. I just don't. So it's not like his taste buds didn't taste. He was so tuned into the spiritual dynamics of life that he just didn't taste. It was not, it didn't even register in his psyche. So his body must have been tasting, but his head didn't taste. So it was like, so he, it, could, it was so salty that it gives person pain. To him, it was, it was just eating. He, he didn't notice it. 
So he's going to talk about that. Now a person can bring themselves to a point that that becomes in everything. That the material things don't matter. If you're a tzaddik, it's not besukah. If you're a person who's not a tzaddik, and you should still be involved in the world, yeah, but the people that are tzaddikim. So it's not, it's besukah if you don't have spiritual pleasures. <laughs> but if you actually live a spiritual life, you're not lacking anything. You have a million times more pleasure. Because your pleasure is, 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 is on a far more expansive. It's like the little, it's like this becomes silly, inconsequential pleasures that you forget about. And it becomes, becomes meaningless. It's possible you have a person. They can reach a point of equin. Okay, I have a hard time always saying that word. Equanimity. Even something that the soul naturally would like. Like all the pleasures of the world. Like money. The COVID and, and pleasure. And all the other delights and desires of this world. The person doesn't have any desire in them at all. On the contrary, the person is repulsed by it. In other words, what does that mean, repulsed by it? An experience of pleasure of the world that's not tuned into God. If it's a mitzvah. If I can enjoy the food and, and feel that the, the pleasure of the food is divine, then I'm, enjoy, then I'm enjoying the divinity, not the food. But, but to experience just pure material exp- pleasures, since it's devoid of godliness, and these are people whose life is God, and therefore anything other than God is not, doesn't interest them at all, and in a sense is an interference, so they begin to be disgusted by it. They don't want it. It's as if their soul hates it. It becomes natural to them that any... This is a very high level. There's nothing higher than it. It means that they've undressed themselves. Even while they're in a body... From material things, like perfect tzaddikim, their souls have divested themselves and separated themselves and undressed themselves from every desire and longing for the material world, of this world. Even though it's against the nature of the animal soul. There's an animal spirit that naturally cleaves to these things. But these people have sucked up their animal soul into their godly soul. That's what he, that can only be when you reveal your essence, deeper than pleasure. Then it flips the animal soul and, and sucks the animal soul into the godly soul. And then, The first, their natural nature, their, their, their nature that they were born with has become canceled completely. <coughs> it's as if they got a whole new, they've, they've completely reprogrammed their body. 
to find uh, to be to be repulsed by the pleasures of this world legamri i'm going to say a very intense story but it's an intense story i mean please understand the story because i don't think anybody everybody can handle the story but i'm still going to tell the story i'll tell you two stories about this <coughs> the middle Rebbe, the one who wrote this book i think he got married when he was 16. those days they got married very young <laughs> i'll tell you a related story Oh, it's great, it's great, it's great. It was worth waiting here for three hours just for these stories. <laughs> how did the how did the Alter Rebbe choose a wife for his for his son, the Mittler Rebbe? His wife was named Shana. She was a daughter of a Malamid, of a she was a daughter of a of a Malamid, of a of a of a, of a school of a school children teacher. What happened was the school teacher came to the altar Rebbe. You see how the school teacher, throughout this entire story, you see this point that we're talking about. Mama, see this point. It's so beautiful. The school teacher comes to the altar Rebbe in a private audience and he, and, he, and he cries. He says, Rebbe, I can't daven. Rebbe says, well, I can't, I can't pray with concentration. I can't meditate in my prayer. The Rebbe says to him, why can't you pray? So he says, because I, I get distracting thoughts. <clears throat> the Rebbe said to him, what, what gives you distracting thoughts? He says, I have three daughters at home that have already reached marriageable age. And I don't have money. I don't have, a, I don't have any money to give for dowry. And I don't have any even suggestions for them. And it hurts me so deeply. So therefore, I can't pray, Rabbi. I can't concentrate. So first of all, you see, he wasn't complaining that he has daughters that he can't marry. His main concern was he can't pray. What bothered him so much was, I want to pray. I want to daven. I want to connect to God. Now, I have an interference. I guess the altar Rebbe liked that. Because he could have, most people would come and say, Rebbe, I have a problem. My daughters, I need to get them married. But he was just consumed with his davening. And he said, Rebbe, I can't daven because I have a problem. So the Rebbe says, okay, I've resolved all your things. Now he says, "Uh, what's her name? He says, her name is Shana. Okay, don't worry. He says, your oldest daughter, Shana, she's going to marry my son. I'm taking her as a (laughs) daughter-in-law. That's how they had arranged marriages, you understand? Um, She's going to marry mine. And with the other two, two, and so you don't have to give dowry. We're good. And the other two, what happened was, and he took it, because when everybody heard that he became, this guy is now, his status went up, his stocks went up, he became the mechutten of the Alter Evans. Everybody, every, thousands of chassidim, everybody wanted to give their sons to marry the other. What do you mean? That her sister is married to the Rebbe, to the Mittler Rebbe. Anyways, the Mittler Rebbe, when he was 16 years old, I think, or 15 or 16, was engaged. The Mittler Rebbe wanted to get married very much. Why? He couldn't wait for his wedding. Why? Same story. He couldn't wait to hear the Hasidus that his father is going to say by his wedding. <laughs> he knew by the wedding, the Alter Rebbe is going to be in such an elated state 
and he's going to speak about a wedding spiritually. He couldn't wait to hear the Hasidus at the altar. Little did he know that part of a wedding also means that he has to be physical with his wife. The middle level, his mind and his heart and his entire being was purely in the spiritual world. He had no, uh, he had no exposure, let's say, to, the, to what we call the facts of life. He just didn't know. Before his wedding, he, got a, he had to learn the laws and he had a teacher who kind of explained to him what's going to have to happen. The Mittler Rebbe was so shocked about this whole situation, which to him, I mean, on face value, was so animalistic and so lowly that when it came the night of the wedding, he was excited for the Hasidus, but when they had to go home with his wife, he just started barfing and became very sick. He just he became nauseous and he, he couldn't imagine that he would, you know, because he had, he's a 16-year-old boy, you can imagine that he has, physically his body should be able to whatever, but his world is pure godliness. He couldn't relate to the physical at all. His father had to call him in. And his father must have given him the spiritual explanation of how he can connect to her on a, on a purely divine, godly, neshama, soul connection. And the physical would be just an expression of the soul bond. Obviously, he lived with her because they had children. right? So that's proof that there was marital relations. But it was all just a continuation of his soul's bond, not on the physical level. So you see that the Art Sadiqim, the Mittler Rebbe is talking about this, but he's actually talking about himself. He, the author of the book, lived in this state that his animal soul didn't exist anymore as an independent experience where physical pleasure is means something. It didn't mean anything. His life is purely just a spiritual dynamic. Reb Michalov Zlachev, one of the colleagues of the Altarev, colleagues of the Altarev, Or a student of the Balshemto, actually a gener- not a colleague of the a, a generation, a generation before the Alter Rebbe. He, Remichel Ozlachev, wanted the Alter Rebbe to be his student, one of the greatest of the Hasidic masters. When he was a young man, he was a teacher for kids in a certain inn. And, he, and I think name went out that he's a miracle worker and that he's a very big tzaddik. And there was a Paritz, Paritz was a, a Polish nobleman who met him, and I think he was blown away by him. He was taken by him. I'm not exactly sure the big, if this part of the story is correct, but something like this. And he came home, and he spoke to his wife, and so on and so forth. And she was a very cynical person. She didn't believe in holy people. I guess she, and she decided that, yeah, he's holy, he's holy, and that's because I didn't test him. She was a very beautiful woman, and she decided that she's going to do what Yosef, what happened to Yosef in this week's parsha, the wife of Potiphar, she was going to seduce him. And then she was going to show that what people say is the saintly person, he's very human and very not. So somehow she managed to get into a room with him alone 
she came dressed very provocative and she started coming close to him and trying to do whatever she can, literally like a prostitute, whatever. And Michal was, you know, and as she got close to him, he just looks at her and he just vomits right on her. See, what the ordinary people might be a a a a desire, a want to a regular person. If you're a physical person, then physicality gets to you. And one of the desires of the world, and probably one of the most powerful desires in the world, is the sexual desire and so on and so forth. But to Remichel, this was sin, this was not godly. It evoked not desire, as beautiful as she was, and as crazy um, um, attractive as she was, his reaction to it was, he, he, repu- he it was repulsive. He literally, his, he had a physical repulsiveness to her. And he, and he vomited. And obviously that was the end of the whole thing. And she learned her lesson and got out of there and took a shower and that was it. But she realized the idea over here is that, that Art Sadiq, who, 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 to them, they, they become so identified with, with the divine that outside of it, nothing exists. Now, it's very interesting. How can a person know if they really reach that level? If they don't feel anymore, they don't have a desire anymore for physical things. They don't have a passion. You know, they, lunch is waiting for them. They can forget about it for an hour or for two hours. They don't get excited about other... Of what? I'm giving lunch as, a, as, a, as one example where food is... Where, where if one of the things are food, the person can be excited about food. Much deeper. Lunch is an external level, but the, the, the pleasures of COVID, as we said, they, to them, it, they have no desire that people should honor them. It doesn't quite, they honor it. But how do you really, really know that it's really true? You've really reached that point. Maybe you slightly still like it, still enjoy it, but you're not, it's just subconscious. The answer is, how do you feel? How do you feel when you thought you're getting it and it was taken away? That meaning you, you, you can test it more from the no than from the yeah. Which means from the fact that when you have it, you don't feel pleasure in it, it doesn't mean anything. The question is, will you get upset if you thought you're going to have it and it was taken away? Or it doesn't phase you one bit. Which is the pain which is the opposite of the pleasure, which always is equal. If when it comes to matters of this world, someone goes against their will, against the person's desire, it will cause an excitement of pain or some kind of suffering. 
that's a sign that you still have some kind of a desire and some kind of, of a pleasure. That's why you have pain by the opposite, by not having it. It means that this person has not become converted and nullified with an absolute nullification, lativius agashvius, to their net, to their material nature. This person has not elevated themselves from the material world, Adayim. If you lose a lot of money, will it, will it hurt you? The person lost money. Or a person had hundreds of followers and they all decided to leave him. Whatever. Will that cause pain? It's a sign that they have a pleasure in the money, the covet, and in the honor. In other delights and desires of this world. And how can you know how much pleasure is still there? You can measure how much pain you have. A lot or a little. How fast does it take to get over it? That will be the thermometer to test how much pleasure and desire you still have in the money and in the honor. And even though the art tzaddikim, that still get pain, if they don't have pleasure, I'm sorry, if, if, they're, if, 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 the, if, they weren't, if they weren't honored, or other things. But since they're tzaddikim, they get over it very quickly. It's very, it's very little. Very quickly, they, they get over it. Because it doesn't touch them too deeply. It's like a brush, a little. It's like, it's like a very external wound that, that it heals very quickly. It's a sign that they don't have a lot of desire and a lot of pleasure in it. There's still a little bit there. That's why the pain is little bit. And very quickly they get over it. This week in the parsh, Yaakov Avinu has the deepest pleasure in Yosef. So when Yosef goes away from him, he, he, he completely is destroyed. But that's not because of physical Yosef. That's because of the spiritual Yosef. Because Yosef is spiritually connected to his soul. And the fact that Yosef was taken away from him, he literally lost his entire life. Yaakov was a zombie for those 22 years. That's what it says. He did, the divine, the dwelling of Hashem did not dwell on him. He was sitting in the morning, so much so that I saw a peerage that his children became so frustrated that their father had no more life to them that they also abandoned him. He sat in his own misery and no one wanted to even be company with him because they were, they were hoping that he would just continue. Okay, over it. You, you cried already enough. But, and therefore it says, the verse repeats again, that his father cried for him. According to Rashi, it means that Yitzchak cried for Yaakov. But according to other Mepharshim, Yaakov continued crying alone. His family no more participated. But, but why was Yaakov so devastated? Because because his soul was bond with Yosef. 
Um, but then there is a higher level of tzaddikim. They don't get excited at all from a diminishment of money or the lack of, of, of honor. Even if they lose, God forbid, they're, they're lacking in the more essentials of life, children, health, and sustenance. Even if, God forbid, they're lacking simply food to eat, it doesn't in any way change their mood. Or even if they're, they're physically not well, they're still as happy. Even if physically their body is going through a lot of pain. It doesn't register in them as something to mourn about. Or if, or even with children, God forbid. So that's already a different thing. So if they lose a child, the question is how much is it the spiritual side of it and how much? They accept it with complete love. In other words, maybe it could be because they realize it's the God's will and then they can just connect to the godliness of it and everything else becomes void. The famous story with Reb Zusha, the, f- the famous example is the holy saintly Reb Zusha of Anapali, who was a c- best friends of the Alter Reb. Who lived literally a life of the most, he was so poor, he didn't have, didn't have anything. His family was poor, poor, poor. And once the, the Mizritcha Magid, the holy Rebbe of the Alter Rebbe and the Rebbe of Reb Zusha, two of students of his, Reb Shmelka and Reb Pinchas, two students of his, came to ask him, how can someone thank God for the bad as good, with the same, with the same excitement like thanking God for the good? It's impossible. The, the Mishnah says that you're supposed to thank God for bad things that happen to you with the same excitement as something good. It's not possible. So Rabbi Yusha said it's, so the Ramagid said it's a very good question. That question you, sh- you have to go ask my student Rabbi Zusha. He'll give you the answer. So they traveled to Rabbi Zusha and they got to his house and they, they never saw such poverty. They saw, most, and they thought to themselves, okay, this is a guy who had one day of suffering in his life. So they asked him, the Holy Rebbe sent me to ask you, how is it that a person can thank God for pain the same way like you thank for good? So Rabbi Shusha thinking, thinking. And they're wondering, what is he thinking? They thought he's thinking about the answer. Rabbi says, and he's puzzled. He says, I really don't understand. He said, what do you mean you don't understand? I don't understand why the Rebbe would send you to me. They said, what do you mean? He said, I never had a bad day in my life. I could I don't have experience. Someone, such a question, you have to ask someone who's been through that and, and did that, had trouble in his life and had hard days. You can ask him how you think, oh, but I've never, and that's what the Magid was showing them. What the sages mean that, is that a person who's living ultimately in this level doesn't even realize that anything bad is happening. Because to Reb Zusha, his entire pleasure was his connection to God. And that he had. The fact that there was a leak in the house and it was freezing cold and, 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 and there was nothing to eat and everybody was hungry. Yeah, okay. That's a problem that you have to take care of. <laughs> he, he knew he has to take care of it. Whatever. 
but but it wasn't it didn't occupy his entire being because to him life was godliness and even for his children which for them you can say okay they're suffering but to him to his children too his children were learning olive bays his children were doing mitzvahs so they're being taken care of okay so they don't have shoes they have some makeshift shoes fine <laughs> he lived in a world where his reality was god he had no more reality in the physical world again this is not for everybody this is yeah. It's a sign that they have no more desire and pleasure in the matters of this world. That's why it doesn't affect them to have any excitement from the opposite. Beheder, when they don't have that pleasure. Until all matters of this world, even when they want something, if in the end they do the opposite, doesn't bother them at all. It doesn't pain them at all when they do the opposite. Because even if they have a desire, it's very superficial. God forbid when the opposite happens. To us, we can see that physical things, if we don't get what we wanted, bothers us very much. And what happens when you were planning to do a mitzvah and it didn't work out? I don't know. You, 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 were, you were supposed to give a class and then the person canceled. So, how much does it bother you? You could have taught Torah. You could have taught, you could have went, it's canceled. Okay, so now I'll learn next week. It's a sign that your spiritual desire is very superficial. He's talking the opposite, when physical things are superficial. It's sad when we identify so much with the physical that when our physical desires are not met, we go crazy. And when our spiritual desires are like kind of didn't work out, we don't, we don't lose any sleep over it. It doesn't bother us to no end. We forget about it instantly. That's a problem. That's a serious problem. If you still bothered a little bit, it's a sign that you have some pleasure that can help. The Nimtza comes out. Let me just complete this chapter. The perfect tzaddikim that have undressed themselves from all physical desire of this world even when things are done against their will, doesn't hurt them at all. They don't have any pleasures in the pleasures of this world. This is called equanimity. And the Baal says, this is where we need to reach. That everything becomes equal to me because God is always there. And I always say this is God's will. This is God's will. Doesn't doesn't make a difference. Like wealth and honor. When he doesn't have them, doesn't have any pain. Yes and no are equal. Like Job says, God gave me the gift and now God took it away. So it's all God. So what am I going to get upset about? 
the receiving it or the losing it, their heart doesn't skip a beat. When they have it, it doesn't add pleasure. When they lost it, it doesn't diminish any pleasure. Because life is not, to them, to these righteous people, life is not a physical, a physical experience. Life is purely attachment to God. That's why the sages say, you're supposed to bless God for the bad in the same way that you're blessed for the good. Now, in chapter 9, he's going to explain how can someone come to that? How do you come to that? That's if you revealed your essence of your godly soul. Then you, the animal soul becomes dug, you've dug out the klippa from its roots and you flipped over the root of it. You see, if we all have an unholy soul, which, which let's see the unholy soul inside of it like a plant. It's growing. If we cut it off on one of the branches, we snip it, it will regrow again. If you snip it even lower, it will still regrow again. But if you uproot it from its roots, from the Shoresh, it will never be. That's what it means when you reveal your essence of your soul. Then you uproot the, the klippa, the, the unholy soul that sees the superficiality of existence as real, and you uproot that and you flip it at that level, then, then there's no more challenge. We ended up learning only one chapter tonight when I was going to do all five. But we did a good summary, and I think we, we explained most of the mimer coming up. And... He's going to explain later how Mashiach will lead us into this level. We're going to have to still spend a week or two, I guess, on finishing this. But this mimer is worth learning well. This is so fundamental and so beautiful. So thank you for being with me. May we all experience a very happy Hanukkah. And let us see Mashiach now.